Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I've got a good show for you this week. We're going to go from the Bronx to Queens, talk about the Mets this week. I'm going to be joined just a bit by Newsday's Tim Healy. We're going to talk about the latest goings on with the Mets at summer camp. And I got to say, I'm enthusiastic about the Mets. And I know, anything can happen this year. Uh, so far, I mean, they're healthy. They sound like they're doing well. Your Assessor is crushing the ball at, at batting practice. Jacob DeGroms, they might be able to hit six innings by opening day. A lot of fun stuff to catch up with Tim Healy on a bit. I'll also be opening the Met Fan Forum this week. I'm going to be joined by uh, Will Schneiderhand, the Met half of the baseball beat, Jill Venditti. We're going to break down a bunch of more topics about the Mets. So if you're a Met fan, this is the podcast for you. We're also going to take a dive into the world of fantasy baseball with the great Alan Austin. He has a big fantasy baseball guy. It's an interesting challenge to be doing fantasy baseball this year with a 60-game season going on here and a very short amount of weeks to play it in, so... We'll talk to Alan about how he's approaching this year and some tips you could use if you're having a draft coming up. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for the latest appearance from the great John Stanko. We're taking a dive into the action film world of the John Wick trilogy. John is a big fan of those films. We'll talk about that. Some more stuff at the end of the podcast. But I will get started with our opening tip in just a minute. We'll talk the latest with college sports. Ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back. Opening tip time. Talking some college sports. Figuring out what the landscape's going to look like for them going forward. And once again, the Ivy League finds itself center stage. Because remember back in March... The Ivy League was the first to cancel its conference tournament for college basketball. Everybody said, oh, they're overreacting. This is crazy. You're taking this too seriously. Then a couple days later, they said, we're canceling all spring sports. Everybody, again, you're crazy. What are you talking about? This is an overreaction. And within a day, the NCAA followed suit. All the conference tournaments were canceled. The NCAA tournament was canceled. Spring championships were canceled. No spring sports were played. The Ivy League now has set their stage for the fall sports. And right now, they're not going to be in the Ivy League. They are not resuming athletic competition until at least January due to the outbreaks of the coronavirus situation there. There's possibility they may reschedule some of these fall sports, which include football, soccer, volleyball, field hockey, any stuff like that, all get cooked by a push of the spring. Football in particular, they're talking about maybe doing a seven-game conference-only season from, let's say, April to mid-May. That's possible right now with the Ivy League. And you wonder, is that the first domino to fall? We've seen a couple other schools. I think VCU canceled football for this year. Longwood did. The Power Five is starting to respond, but they are taking a different approach. They are basically setting themselves up for a delay, and they're trying to keep it within their conference. The Big Ten is the first one now is that all their fall sports, including football, will feature just conference games. So a 10-game conference-only schedule, Limits travel, 
keeps the number of teams you're interacting with a smaller basis. The ACC, the Pac-12, are likely to follow as well. Notre Dame, who is independent, plays all over the country. Six, like they're going to be looped into the ACC more. They already had about six games contracted to the ACC. They could add more games with them to sort of get to a, re- a reasonable level of complete schedule-ness for the season. But you do lose a lot of big games with non-conference schedule. Ohio State and Oregon, not going to happen. Wisconsin, Notre Dame, not going to happen. A lot of these big games are not going to happen. And it's a wonder. It's like, are we trying too hard to squeeze this in here? Because college sports, I know it's a big business. And unlike the pros where, you know, they have a lot of it's like the TV contracts and not having the fans, it's a hurt the bottom line, they'll make it up down the line. If you hurt the bottom line in college sports, the athletics department takes the hit, not like the not the players. They don't get paid. The athletic departments and a lot of those departments use the money from football and men's basketball, the two big revenue sports, to fund all their other programs. So that soccer team for your favorite local college, the baseball team, softball, all that stuff is funded by the money that they generate from football and basketball because those sports make the money. People are not paying big tickets to go watch college soccer or college baseball. If you do the football season without the fans in the stands, that's a big money loss. That's going to be extracted from some of these other non-revenue sports. We've seen Stanford already cancel 11 varsity sports. None of the big ones. It's talking about stuff like, you know, like swimming, field hockey, rowing, stuff like that. Those are all been wiped out. Cincinnati's already eliminated its men's soccer team. Other schools are eliminating some non-revenue sports. This is a bad thing for college sports right now. And even if the plan is, okay, we're going to stick to our little conference bubbles, kind of regionalize the travel like we're doing, like MLB is doing here, where all the teams are only traveling from the East Coast, the Central Zones, and the West in the regular season. And the Big Ten says, okay, we're only playing games with our school, so we're not going any further west than Nebraska, any further east than Rutgers. That sounds fine in theory, but the problem is the virus is still spreading a lot of these states. There's a lot of people you're dealing with, and you are asking athletes who are 18 to 22 years old and not getting paid to not live their lives in order to play football. I don't know the feasibility of that. Because think about when you were 18 or 19 years old. Would when you were not like you know going to class or whatever, you're out going to parties, you were out you know hanging out with your friends, you were seeing your girlfriend. These athletes are going to do that. The odds of getting almost thousands of thousands and thousands of college football players, many of whom will not go on the pros, by the way, a lot of them their run ends in college. If you're going to tell them, hey, like. You can't go to this party tonight. You can't go see your girlfriend tonight. You have to stay in because we have to be ready for the football game. I don't know if you're gonna get you're not gonna get a hundred percent success rate. And football, not unlike baseball, big contact sport. So if one guy gets in there, an asymptomatic case, you can infect two teams. You're shutting down the league. I don't think it's gonna work. I think the spring path is something that they do not want to pursue because of money. Obviously, they also they're hiding behind the, the belief of oh. You don't want the athletes playing two seasons in, in a calendar year, but they're making them go to spring practice and do all that. So that argument doesn't hold water to me. 
I think the challenge with college sports is still, what's the best way to do it? Because, again, a lot of these things, this is not professional level of athletes. These athletes are not getting paid. They are supposed to be student athletes. And some of these campuses, we still don't know if there could be students on the campus in the fall. How does it look if, say, the University of Arizona decides we're not going to bring students onto the campus, but we're going to bring the football team onto the campus so they can play games? At that point, then you're opening up the whole can of worms the NCAA does not want to answer, which is, why aren't the athletes being paid? They're putting themselves at higher risks. They are not receiving any financial reward for it, apart from their scholarship. And the last thing a school would wants to have happen here is to have a 18, 19-year-old athlete playing a game for no money for the school, get the virus, get sick, and get, end up hospitalized. It's a tricky tightrope to walk. They think they may be able to do this, but I'm still very skeptical. Basketball, same situation. We have not heard much of a decision on basketball yet because apart from the Ivy, which basically said no competition, which means no basketball games for January 1st, a lot of the non-conference games are involved teams flying all over the place, going to Florida, going to Hawaii, going to Alaska, you name it. That's a lot of travel and a lot of people going different places with the virus still spreading pretty much unchecked in almost 40 states, which is ridiculous. I know what Coach Rick Fatino recently said, you know what, we should put the season back until January and play conference only. Sort of do what the football is doing and saying, okay, we're going to stick to our geographic footprint. We're going to play these games and we will see if we can get enough of a season here to basically run the tournament in March. Hopefully at that point you have a vaccine, people are getting vaccinated, you get some butts in the seats. That's all well and good. Until you have that vaccine, though, I think you have to be very conservative about how you do this. The pros are a slightly different situation because the pros, they want the TV money. They are also being paid as athletes to do their job, and your employer can tell you, hey, don't go out to that, to that barbecue over the weekend because we want you to stay healthy. And they'll say, sure, I want to get paid. The college athlete is not going to have that same level of incentive to say, you know what, I'm not going to go to my friend's barbecue because I'm not getting paid to play football. The money that can be lost here is significant. And I think college has to be very careful how they start their football up because the last thing they can afford to do is play three games, cancel the season, and then see budgets just collapse from the lack of money coming in from the football. Even with, let's say, these pie-in-the-sky programs say they can actually get fans in the building, which I don't see anywhere without a vaccine. But we'll humor them. We'll say they can do it. You know what? Reduce capacities. Is that going to play maybe like, what, 15,000 people in the horseshoe? that worth it? How much money are you actually getting out of that? Is that about putting uh, 25,000 people in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan? I don't know if that's going to work. That's also a super experiment. And smart people are not going to go to those things because – Going to a sporting event is still the highest risk activity you have in terms of contracting the coronavirus. According to a study published by, I think, the, by a Texas Medical Association, going to a sporting event was a 9 out of 10 in terms of getting the coronavirus, the risk scale, a 9. That's out there with going to a bar, going to a movie. That's a very high risk factor, just, just going to a stadium. The athletes themselves, I mean... Football and basketball, like they were a seven on the Texas medical scale. These are things you have to think about your college because you're not paying your athletes. You have a lot more of them. And there's a not just, you know, 32 football teams or 30 baseball teams. 
There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of colleges throughout this country. It's not just D1. You have the subdivision. You have D2. You have D3. You have the NAIA. It's a very complicated issue if people are traveling across state lines. I don't know what the answer is. And the Ivy might be right here. The Ivy might have, again, laid the groundwork for college sports and said, hey, we can't do this until we are in a better place with the virus or are getting vaccinated for it. The Ivy right now, I think, has later a message that the rest of college does not want to hear. Time will tell if they are going to be right once again. And remember, they are very smart in the Ivy League. It would not shock me if they are ahead of the curve once again. And we have the formula for future stuff coming from the Ivy League. But up next, look at our conversation with Tim Healy talking New York Mets baseball right after this. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life, because the Mets are really sucking the ball, knocking those home runs over the wall, east side, west side, everybody's coming down to meet the All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, talking Mets baseball with the guy who covers the team for Newsday, Tim Healy. Tim, welcome. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. How are you? Doing very well. I'm excited, Mets fan. I know you're heading down to City Field today. I want to ask you, what's it been like going down there covering the team's summer camp in the COVID era? It's been different than normal. Definitely different. To get into the building, you have to take your get your temperature taken. You have to audibly confirm that you have not had symptoms, that nobody you've come into contact has had symptoms, things along those lines. So they've got all sorts of protocols in for players and staff to get in, and the same goes for the media. Uh, And then, of course, you know, the workday is different. Reporters are more or less restricted to the press box, whereas usually in a spring training environment, which this is, of course, you can get down on the field, watch the drill up close, things along those lines but uh now i have my binoculars with me and we have to get by with that so (laughs) making the best out of it uh and trying to get used to the new rules and restrictions yeah do they require you guys to sort of like take a covid test every so often before you go to the park or is it like they go on the honor system with that that you're not don't have symptoms or anything for reporters it's basically the honor system uh mlb split up people who come into the ballpark into tiers So players and coaches are tier one, some support staff are tier two. Those top two tiers get tested every other day for COVID-19, or at least they're supposed to early on. It hasn't really happened, as has been in the news lately. Uh, And then reporters are tier three. So we don't get tested, at least not by MLB and the team. Uh, So it's essentially the honor system, uh, which hopefully in this environment, during a global pandemic is is good enough. Yeah, I would hope so. And for all accounts, we've heard the Mets have done very well with the COVID protocols. I've heard players talk about how well they've done. Like, from the players you spoke to, do they seem confident in the ability of the league to actually heal the stage this season? It sounds that way. They, they, they say they are. It's, it's hard to know uh, how somebody truly feels 
beneath the surface. But all indications are for Mets to have, you know, spoken to reporters that things have gone smoothly for the Mets. They're confident that a season can happen, which is, of course, is not a sentiment that has been universal across baseball. You know, we've seen Mike Trout speak up, Sean Doolittle, you know, Zach Wheeler now with the Phillies. He's nervous. He said he might not come back after his baby's born. But as far as the Mets world, things seem to be going pretty smoothly. So uh, props to them so far. Yeah, indeed. And no, it's never usually easy to be smooth with the Mets, but they've done this right so far. And I do feel like it's an interesting spring training, both Luis Rojas and Brody Van Wagenen, who I don't know if you agree with me. I feel like they're under more pressure now because there's an ownership change probably coming after the season. Yeah. Like, how much do you think like they sort of feel the heat? Like, we have to do well to keep our jobs after this team's potentially sold. You know, I asked Brody that in March, right before things shut down, and wrote about it recently. And he says that it's not even on his mind, which, I mean, I don't know. I know pro sports is a little different than most jobs, but if my job was at all on the line or I was getting a new boss, I'd be a little, a new, a little nervous. You know what I mean? I, th- I think that would be only only fair. Um, but, you know, Brody says he isn't worried. Uh, as I wrote in the story, it was about a week ago, but people can find it on, on Newsday.com, I'm sure. Uh, Any time the boss changes, in this case, a boss, the boss at ownership level, uh, assuming a sale does happen sometime in the next couple of months, then all bets are off for everything else, right? That guy gets to make his own decisions about who he wants running his organization. Uh, I don't know who it's, who's going to buy the team. I, you know, I have my educated guesses on what's going on. Um, but when the dust does settle and there is a new owner, we'll see what happens. Brody Van Wagenen's fate, uh, and, and to a certain extent as well, Luis Rojas's fate, uh, will certainly be among the first questions asked. Uh, Rojas may be less in danger because he just got hired and he's not, not really going to have a season to prove himself, uh, whereas Brody's been at it for going on two years, which for GM still isn't a long time. So we'll see what happens there when the dust settles. Yeah, you said you had some educated guesses on how the ownership situation plays out. Like, if you were to put a handicap it, like, based on your personal opinion, like, who do you think would be the favorite to get them? Uh, I see Steve Cohen as the favorite. Newsday reported uh, last night and in, in today, Tuesday's paper, that Cohen is putting a bid uh, in, in top, you know, before the Thursday deadline for first round bid. So Steve Cohen is back involved at this moment, and nobody can match him on one wealth, obviously, but also personal interest in owning the team, right? Remember, he grew up on the island going ground for those first couple of years with his grandfather. He's a huge Mets fan. He is already a minority owner. This is a guy who would not buy the Mets as an investment, really, but as a hobby, right? He's that rich that he can buy a $2 billion or so major league team as a hobby. So, uh, he's got to be the favorite in my eyes as long as, long as he wants it. Um, and then after that, I mean, it's anybody's guess. I, A-Rod's a- group of investors, I've never totally believed in, but they have gotten momentum over the course of this process in terms of getting some names and getting some money. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's also Josh Harris and David Blitzer who own the Sixers and Devils. Uh, I would probably rank them third. 
yeah, definitely interesting to follow how that goes. And I want to ship some of the players on the field. And we've seen some workout footage coming through. We've seen DeGrom working out. We've seen some of the footage of players working out. Like, who intrigues you the most and who you've seen so far? Uh, it's got to be Yoenis Cespedes. We have not seen him in a major league game in just about two years. And by all accounts, he's he's been good. You know, Cespedes gets in these modes. He gets in these moods sometimes where if he's taking batting practice and wants to put on a show, he'll put on a show. And two days ago on Sunday, it felt like he was in one of those moods going into the second deck in left field with ease. Um, I didn't see him reach the third deck. That would have been even more impressive, obviously. But uh, he seems to be going real good, uh, at least hitting-wise. He has not run the bases fully, which was going to be one of his next steps in spring training, and I haven't seen him do that yet on the field here. So he's not all the way there. But early returns seem promising, which is good for the Mets in their DH spot. Yeah, he brought the DH up spot. Uh, you think this is mostly going to be him in the DH spot? I think they can kind of rotate this around and give guys some rest. Well, it, it'll depend mostly on Cespedes' health. If, it, if Cespedes is healthy and good, then yes, he's going to be the DH or maybe even left field some days, depending on how his feet and legs are treating him. Um, if he isn't going that good or if he isn't totally healthy, then that lets the Mets move move around the DH at bats, and they have plenty of candidates for that, from J.D. Davis to, you know, Dominic Smith or Pete Alonzo and play the other at first base to give Robinson Cano a day off, to give Jeff McNeil and his all-out defensive body a day off from playing the field. Uh, they can go in a lot of different directions. And uh, I'm not sure that there will be any real routine there. Um, again, unless Cespedes is hitting like the Cespedes of five years ago, in which case it's an easier choice. Yeah, he's one I'm intrigued by. Another guy who's I'm sort of a man of mystery over the last couple of days is Jed Lowry with all the comments about his knee and how he doesn't want to create a distraction. Is there been any sort of sense of like what's going on with Lowry and like if he's ever going to be able to get out of that brace? Um, that's a good question. Lowry is a bit of a mystery right now, obviously. I, I, was, I asked him because, you know, I, I write about his injury, but I don't know what to call his injury. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I said, is there any diagnosis you can share or anything? You know, how, how should I refer to this injury? And that's when he said the line about, you know, I doesn't want to be a distraction, which is a thought process that I don't understand. Uh, I think he's making more, if more of a storyline than otherwise would be. Um, but from a health standpoint, from a physical standpoint, he is, he, he, he looks much further away than Cespedes. Uh, we talked to him. He talked to reporters on Sunday. I did not see him out there yesterday, to be honest, which, uh, you know, it's not promising if a guy's not working out on the field when he was running Sunday, um, it, it, during a base running drill, it, he just did not look right. He was well less than full speed. He was gingerly running well slower than all the other guys. So it seems like there are ways to go there. And what he's trying to do is transition from his original brace, which was gigantic, to what he called a functional brace, which is still big but smaller 
and game legal, according to Lowry. So if he can figure out how to play with a comfortable pain level in that brace, then, you know, maybe he'll be on his way more. But right now he's a big question mark. And as far as Mets plans for 2020, you, you can't really count on him for anything right now. Yeah, that's what I was figuring based on the reports I've heard. Two guys who should be a part of the plan, especially in the bullpen, are Dylan Batances and Jerry Somelia. Like, how have the two of them looked and what you've seen so far? They've looked good. They've looked good. Batances, obviously, his issue when spring training got shut down was his fastball maxing out in the low 90s, which is very concerning, especially coming off the injuries that he's coming off of. Uh, he said that was somewhat normal for him that time of year, and he's better now. I don't know where his velocity is now, but the Mets say it's better. So, you know, four months later, I'll give them that benefit of the doubt. Um, so he missed basically all of last year, pitching only one game. If he can return to his perennial all-star form, then that's massive for the Mets. You know, it's not really a given. He dealt with a lot physically last year. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. It seems like a reasonably safe bet that Dylan Batantis will be a good reliever. Uh, Amelia obviously was a disaster last year, lost a ton of weight and I haven't seen him up close, but in pictures and through my binoculars, uh, it looks like he might've lost even more weight now compared to coming into spring training. So, um, you know, does the weight loss help you pitch better? Uh, Maybe, you know, uh, I don't think that's a guarantee, but that's one of those bullpen question marks along with Edwin Diaz, those three guys can make or break the Mets season. Um, if enough of those exclamation points turn in, or if enough of those question marks turn into exclamation points, then the Mets have a potentially like hilariously dominant bullpen. If all of those guys plus Lugo are pitching the way they can pitch, then uh, the Mets have quite a weapon on their hands. Yeah, speaking of Edwin Diaz, I know last year he struggled, lost the closer's job at the end of the year. I know they said they want him to start the year. Do you get the sense that they might go a quick hook if he's struggling out of the gate considering they have other options? Yeah, I, I w- that, w- that wouldn't surprise me. Right now the Mets and manager Luis Ross aren't even committing to a specific closer. Um, I, to me, it seems obvious that it's going to be Diaz. I don't think there's really much of a closer's competition or decision to make, to make there. Um but look at look at the schedule. It's sixty games. If you have a blown save or two blown saves in the first couple of games or weeks, that that could tilt this season right there, right off the bat. So if Edwin Diaz is less than dominant, then the Mets are gonna have no choice but to move away from him pretty quickly. Or else the season can get away from them before they even know it. Yeah, and another key to the big season, getting them off the good start is Jacob DeGrom. Obviously, given the way their schedule is, they can't really like go every four days in because they don't have enough off days to really make it worth their while. Do you think they could be aggressive right. when they pitch him, like where maybe they can like bump into a series against the Nationals and not pitch him against the Orioles, something like that, to try and maximize the effect of his starts? I don't really see that happening. That It, it sounds like what you said about the first idea of pitching on four games rest that, or, or skipping the off days. You know, including the off days, that uh, it, the returns would be minimal, and it's just probably not worth the hassle that would take for rearranging the rotation. You know, as far as the Grom and the effects that would have on other guys. You know, the starters are pitchers of or creatures of habit, and if you arrange the rotation around one guy, then that throws off four other guys. So. 
Uh, I'm skeptical that they'll do that unless it comes down to the nitty gritty at the end. And if they need an extra DeGrom start at the end, then obviously all, all bets are off in a, in a pennant race. But uh, for the majority of the season, I, I probably won't expect that. Yeah, one guy whose role also has not become clear yet is Dom Smith, and he was somebody you figure get more playing time at the DH and all that stuff, but do you think they're going to give him more at-bats or is he going to kind of be the same role as he was last year? Uh, he is among those who stand to benefit from the DH at-bats, and you know, like I said earlier, we'll see how that shakes out with Cespedes and whatnot, but he's absolutely one of those candidates. Right now he's a first baseman, left fielder, pinch hitter type, uh, and uh with probably some DHF bats thrown in. And when I say DHF bats, that might take the form of Pete Alonso DHing and Dom Smith playing first that day. Um, but the point is, there are extra bats to spread around, and I, I would expect Dom to get some of those because he showed us last year that when he gets the chance, he can hit. Yes, he can. And right now, they're getting ready for the short season. We've seen over the last couple of years, they tend to start out pretty hot, and then they usually end up fading around June. Like, do you think the short season actually helps them, given the way that they have so much depth and that they tend to get out of the gate quick? The most honest answer is I have no idea how the short season <laughs> is going to affect anything. And I don't think anybody does, which is going to be part of what's so interesting about this year because nobody's played a 60-game season. Uh, you can look at 60-game samples from last year. Uh, if you look at the first 60 games of 2019 – the Mets were, they were fine, right? If you look at the last 60 games of 2019, I think they were much better. You know, they, they made that run. They uh, were looking for a wild card spot that they ultimately fell short of. So uh, baseball, generally speaking, is a total crapshoot, right? The old cliche, you can't predict baseball. That's true. In a 60-game season, that's even more true. So uh, I have no idea how it's going to affect them. Uh, I, I hope that we can find out and that the coronavirus circumstances, uh, you know, are good enough that we can watch some actual baseball this year. Yeah, I agree with that. And like, got two more questions. Like number one is obviously like, what do you think the biggest key is for the Mets in this short season? Would you think it's the bullpen make sure they get the best out of these guys? Yeah, I think it's the bullpen because like, like, like those three guys I mentioned earlier behind Lugo or in addition to Lugo, who's been very good, of course, Atantis, Diaz, Familia, um, if they're good, the Mets could be great. And if they're bad, then it's going to get ugly probably. Uh, in, in that sense, the Mets, the, the bullpen is a microcosm of the organization as a whole or the team as a whole. They could be dominant, but they could be, you know, nothing worth remembering really. So uh, there's, there, there is a wide swath of possibilities with this team in particular. Yeah, that's one that's one thing. And the last question, I'm going to go back to the summer camp aspect a little bit because I was watching some of the Yankee intra-squad game last night on Yes, and Buck Schultz made an interesting point on it. He basically said that a lot of these teams might be tempted to, you know, rush out of the gate, get everybody ready to go. And he said, you know, maybe we should slow down a little bit, make sure these guys don't hurt themselves in addition to not getting COVID. So do you see anything the Mets are trying to do sort of make sure that they pace these guys properly so not getting injured and coming off this long layoff in the summer camp? I agree with Joe Walter that teams would be wise to do that because I think the injury risk is a little higher this year because everything is so different. You know, the long layoff where guys weren't working out like they normally do to a rushed spring training. Um, so I think Joe Walter made a good point there. I don't know what specifically the Mets are doing to avoid that uh, other than, uh, you know, the, the, their, their, their crutch 
is to cite the performance staff, uh, which is basically the trainers and the health people who, uh, you know, make sure players are in tip-top shape and not overexerting themselves, which is going to be important this year. So uh, I, w- I would think that the Mets are doing making some sort of effort along those lines. I just uh, I can't tell you about it specifically. All right, Tim. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with the stuff you're writing at Newsday? Sure. People can find me on Twitter at Tim B. Healy. That's H-E-A-L-E-Y. And then, of course, on, at Newsday.com slash Mets will bring you right to all of our Mets stories that uh, I like to think are pretty good and thorough. So ho- hopefully people agree. I do agree, Tim, and I am knocking on wood right now that we actually get the coronavirus thing under control, get the testing under control. We have the season that we want to see because it would be a lot of fun. Me too, man. It would be a drag if it didn't happen, so uh, let's hope it happens. Tim, thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to, Mike. All right, there you have it. That was Tim Healy from Newsday talking about the Mets. A lot of interesting stuff from Tim right there. We're going to turn the page to the Met Fan Forum next. I'm going to be joined by Will Schneiderhan and Jill Venditti talking about the Mets. We'll talk a little about what Tim had to say and more right after this. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. This is the Fan Forum. All right, here we are in the Mets Fan Forum, the most frequent fan forum on this podcast because I am a Mets fan. Very happy to be back here. First up today, joining me in the Fan Forum, the Met half of the baseball beat, Will Schneiderhan. Will, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Glad to get you back on the horn. We're going to be busy with you for a couple of weeks now as the baseball hopefully continues to ramp up. Yeah, let's hope, right? I mean, at least give us something to uh to at least watch and enjoy for a little bit. It's going to feel really weird. Obviously, we'll get into that. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited, you know, for some more heartbreak. So let's get it going. <laughs> That's the spirit. And also joining us today, somebody we last heard from during the holiday season, the holiday special. She's back for her second Met Fan Forum, Jill Venditti. Jill, how are you? I am, you know, living the vibe right now in club quarantine. Um, just kind of figuring things out right now, you know? Yeah, aren't we all? I mean, we're still, you know, hunkering down, doing our best to not get the coronavirus, and hopefully we'll have baseball on our TVs about, like, two weeks. That would be nice. Anyway, we are here. We're going to dive into the New York Mets. I just got off the line with Tim Healy on Newsday. You guys got a chance to check that out. Jill, any big takeaways on what Tim had to say? My biggest takeaway, I think, has to be uh, his prediction for the DH. You know, at first, my initial thought was that it ends up being that there's really only four true outfielders. I was like, maybe not, just because they'll need him in left field. Um, so I definitely would like to see him at the DH just to kind of get reps back at the plate. Um, but my first choice, I think, would have to be Dom Smith. And I know he mentioned Smith getting a lot of chances there, too, um, just because I think he also needs the at-bats to get his confidence back up, being that he's no longer the prime first baseman with Alonzo around. So I think... Uh, seeing Dom at the DH position will definitely um, give him a lot of that confidence back, and it'll be very interesting to see what he'll do. But then again, I also wouldn't mind seeing Cano as a DH, but that's really only because I don't want to see him on the field. I don't think he's the best fit at second. I personally would rather see McNeil there, but that's you know, that's kind of my personal preference. Yeah, well, any thoughts on the DH situation? Where would you like to see the Mets go? 
it's I mean, it's it's going to go down that road anyway, right? So basically, you're just going to flip a coin where I guess best finish will be your guy, and then if you can get best finish into the field, you switch it with JD Davis and um, oh my gosh, Davis and uh, Dom Smith. Sorry, it's true blank for a second. Uh, and then uh, yeah, Robbie Cano. I feel like ultimately it's going to be Cano's position uh, because he is just. I mean, Gil just said it. Did you win? Does any other? Any Mets fan really want to sit there and watch Robinson Cano crawl <laughs> at second base, and uh, it's kind of you know kind of stinks because he's not going anywhere anytime soon. But uh, yeah, I think I just I kind of just look at the DH spot as another way to get at bats for you know like just a Dom Smith. He doesn't he's not going to play first every day, obviously. You know, a guy like JD Davis. Um, and it's like, I feel like you can squeak another, like, you know, 50 or so at bats out of those guys. And those are guys who we saw last year. They're productive when they play. And um, I, I just, I, I really don't like look at it as, like, one guy is going to occupy that position the whole time. Because ideally, as we can tell, and as, as a, lot of the, a lot of the reports have been from the uh, summer camp, like, that's what this is. They're trying to get him in the outfield. I mean, you know, they're paying him all that money, and he's a gold lover when he's out there. Uh, so, to me, that's what it's with the safety net at DH, where it's like, if you're going to at least get him, put him there. But, I mean, I, I really would like the guy to actually play the outfield. <laughs> yeah, if you get his cannon out and left, that would be huge to me. But speaking of Robbie Cano, there has been a little bit of breaking news today, courtesy of Tim Healy himself. He pointed out today that Robinson Cano has not been around for the last three practices, and they won't say why, which obviously that could be any number of things, but it's worth monitoring as we head through the next week. Where, where did he go home or something? Like, I don't know. Where did he go for quarantine? Like, is, maybe it's that? Like, right, we, that, my, that weird Rosario thing that was going on? Yeah, because now they've been staggering workouts. I know Rosario said they told him not to come in until Sunday, so you don't know if it's part of the plan or whatnot, but they're not going to be very, like, outcome unless the player wants it to be involved, but Worth monitoring with Robbie Canella. He has not been around the last couple of days. And we're, this is a, as of Thursday, uh, July 9th. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I, maybe he was, I don't know where he was where he was at, so maybe it's just one of those uh, protocol situations. But, uh, yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on, right? I mean, I feel like that's really quiet, right? That he's not there. Don't you think that'd be like some big thing in next Twitter? I mean, I haven't been on it today, so maybe it has. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Healy broke us about an hour ago. He put this story out. So this is just new to us. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of days with the Cano situation. Yes, you will. And speaking of guys who are actually going to be there, though, we did like one guy who has not gotten a lot of attention early on because everybody's crazy about Cespedes' uh, exploits and bag practice. The fact that we got Pete Alonzo, Rookie of the Year, back for his sophomore sophomore season. I think I think it was JD Davis. Somebody said that when he's about to hit thirty homers in sixty games. Jill, like, what are your expectations for Pete Alonso year two? So I'm gonna get on a little bit of a soapbox right now. So I'm gonna take a decent little chunk of your time because um, I have a lot to say about Alonso. I think he really is the best thing to happen for slash to the Mets in 2015 run up series. Um, he's got that drive, the passion, um, and. You know, he's just really what this fan base and this team needs. You know, he also has a lot of power. Obviously, we saw it the home run race and the home run derby itself. Um, and he's also just very enjoyable to watch at the plate. And his, his antics in the dugout, too, are just amazing. And I know he said he's got a lot planned 
for this year, and I'm thoroughly looking forward to it because I just I think we need him as fans, and I think the team needs him. Um, but yeah, he's got something for the fans to look forward to, and I think he could be a really great role model for the young fans and young players uh, to look up to before you know, they get to like the big stage of even college and things, whatever. Um, but I think it's mainly like that he'll be a role model for the way that he plays uh, his game and his energy and just that, that presence that he brings. I mean, he, he may only be in his sophomore season right now or going to be in his sophomore season, but I think he already has shown that he has what it takes to be a leader uh, for this team one day and possibly sooner than we expect. You know, I know a lot of people have been saying this, but it really can't be said enough that uh, Alonzo could very well be the younger fans of David Wright one day, if not right now. Um, you know, I think he resembles Wright in a lot of ways from his swing uh, to his presence in the dugout. And I just can't wait to see what the future ha- holds for him. And I'm a very, very big Alonzo stan. There, I said it. I'm very proud to say that. Yeah, Joe brings a lot of interesting points. Well, I also want to point out that we talk about the, the year show qualities that Alonzo brings up. It makes me think back to last year on 9-11 when he organized the drive to get everybody the 9-11-inspired cleats, and he did that as a rookie and basically took that responsibility on himself. He decided to basically galvanize the fan base. Like, I think she's right. Pete Alonzo is probably the best thing that happened to this franchise in a long time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I think that's pretty much... That would be the shared consensus, wouldn't it be, for an organization that really doesn't have a lot going for him at times? But no, Alonzo is, is just phenomenal. And uh, I think it's like just the intangible stuff, you know, like just the fact that he just gets it, you know. It's like when Judge came up. You just look at that guy and you're like, geez, man, this is just a guy who understands, you know, what platform he's he, he has, what city he's in. You know, the spotlight isn't too big for him, so... I mean, that could all change in the second year, which I just don't, I don't see him falling off the face of the earth. But, you know, you just got to, with Judge, it was the same thing. You know, it's, he's the easy comparison. Because, my God, they are actually more identical than you think. Um, you know, where, remember when Judge's sophomore year was all, all right, we got to see him do it again, we got to see him do it again. And so, yeah, I, I do have to see him do it again with Alonzo. Uh, I don't expect 50 dingers. I mean, that was just, unreal what he did, but I expect the guy who's going to come compete every day, be really productive and just be the, be the uh, center of the lineup figuratively and, you know, like literally. Yeah, I mean, if you had 50 dingers in 60 games, that would be one hell of a season. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even... The 30 is a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, he, uh, I, I hope after this season he can, uh, he can really just, you know, be that four-hole, three-hole first baseman for five to ten years. I'll sign up for that. Yeah, and I did invest in the Pete Alonzo jersey, so I did buy one from the Met team store. I got, I did the transaction <laughs> through Twitter, called up, got it sent to the house. So I have that ready for opening day. Nice. Hey. Sometimes I, you just get sold quick. Yeah. Hey, he he joins the collection right now. It's of my current players. It's him, Yoannis, and Degrom are my three guys who I have jerseys of. <laughs> You had to make up for the Yoannis one. I got you. Yeah, yeah. The one was the first one I got, and then that trying to be a disaster. Then I bought Jake right before the first Cy Young years. So I'm like, okay, this is good. So I bought Alonzo off the off the rookie of the year. Hopefully, the momentum goes forward with that one as well. I like it. Yeah. Speaking of Mister Degrom, I mean, he's going for some history. He's going for three straight Cy Youngs, and he, I think he had a great point about how, like, I don't know how much it's, this means in a shortened year because. 
Like, obviously, it's only 60 gains, but I just think it'd be funny as hell, Jill, if DeGrom just goes 3-2 and two with, like, a 1-1 one, like one, one ERA and a win to Cy Young because nobody else has numbers. If anyone can do that this year, it's going to be him. Like, it, it's kind of, like, a, a simple fact of, like, he has what it takes to do it again. I think he can do it again, even though it is, like, no, what, like a third of the season. I, I can't do math very well, so yeah. I might be completely off my numbers. But, um, you know, in less than half the season, I think it's possible. But at the same time, like, I just don't really know what to expect because he's just been so phenomenal that, like, I want to see him continue on that trajectory of you know, greatness and end up in the hall one day. But, like, in a season like this where nothing's going as planned, it's kind of hard to kind of think about what will happen. Yeah, well, we talked about this off air. The deal of the century by Brian Van Wagen to get Jake DeGrom for five years, $137.5 million, and we see Garrett Cole get three twenty four in, in the following offseason. I mean, all it took was probably the dumbest trade ever with the Cano trade to overshadow that, you know? Like, that's all we spent talking about it, um, about that offseason. Because that happened in the same offseason, correct? Yes. Right? Yeah, it was the, the end of the offseason. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I... People just don't talk about that enough. I mean, literally, that is what we have. They have Degrom under the, like under contract for is is ludicrous. I mean, it is actually insane. I mean, I get it. He's older, but like, oh my god, the best pitcher in baseball, and you have him for nothing. And the Yankees just broke the bank. I mean, we see it all the time with this team having a replacement starting pitching like that. I mean, uh, just the fact that you have this guy for honestly, if Syndergaard is healthy together a good year he's probably touching that same number don't you think yeah easily he if he gets the market he's gonna get that number pretty much if going out there just on talent alone and yeah does a wheeler get paid more than him wheeler got less but like not by much less okay yeah so exactly it's just you have the best pitcher in baseball who i'm pretty sure jake the ground could roll out of bed you know show up to the ballpark and just Say Walker Bueller from the Dodgers, who's probably a good candidate. Yeah. I think he'd be the other Flaherty. Flaherty, possibly. It's like it's interesting. I, I think the relievers could be in play for the side too, just because they get more appearances and have chances to put up stats. Yeah, I mean, for you know, I have to go down a rabbit hole with Martin and Curtis. I actually think yeah, relief pitches are probably such so much more important, honestly, than your relief or your starting pitching this year because you're asking a lot more out of relief pitching. I mean, a lot more. Yeah, it's kind of scary for the Mets. Yeah, since you brought that up, let's go there. Let's go to the bullpen because I when I, talk, when I talked to Tim Healy about it too, he talked he talked about how like Batanzas is throwing well. Last we heard today, he's hitting 92, 93 on the radar gun, which is nice. Edwin Diaz, I got a quick hook on him. Familia's lost the weight. We don't know how it's going to affect him yet. And on paper, if they pitch well, they should have a very good bullpen because they have a lot of arms in it. They did add Jared Hughes in the offseason, like in, prior to summer camp, to give them another big league arm out there. But the thing is, it's still the Met bullpen was awful last year. Law of averages says they should bounce back, but I think the question, I think, Jill, you agree, is just how much? Yeah, I mean, you basically said it. Like, based on paper, they should be really good. But the real question here is, will they be really good? I mean, we were sold last year on... Diaz and Familia coming back 
and look what happened. And Penn said it himself, like, Amelia was flat out not good last year. So I don't really have much faith in those two. Um, but I'm also just, like, really skeptical because we were sold on them and they just underperformed. Um, but, yeah, I just it's one of those things where I think I'm going to have to wait and see how it pans out because there's just so many things that are up in the air and so many things you can't really predict. Um, but I am interested to see how Gazelman performs because Will and I have had this conversation in the past. Like, I personally didn't mind Gazelman in a relief position. I kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt of, like, oh, he's coming from a starting role to now a bullpen role. It's a little bit of a different transition and everything. So I kind of want to see what he'll do this year and kind of – I think he might have a better year because it's a shortened season. But that's who I really have my eye on this year, Gazelman. Yeah, he's, uh, he's actually, I mean, his importance when Senator went down, he all of a sudden becomes a lot more important because he's a guy who can swing it to start. He's a, he's a guy who's going to definitely get the rest of the bullpen. But, uh, yeah, I mean, literally the Mets would have made the playoffs last year if the bullpen was, like, honestly just halfway decent, not even good, you know? Like, the reason they didn't make the playoffs because the bullpen was, every time you pick up the phone to go to it last year, it's like, all right, well, let's see how this goes this <laughs> there is nothing good coming from it. Like you said, Joe Diaz is a train wreck. I mean, just, oh my gosh. So I'm like, uh, I just like, like, it has to get better just by like existence and like the fact that there's no way they can almost replicate. It was almost impressive how bad the bullpen was at that, you know, in that June to July little window there. So I mean, I don't even think, like, I think it just, it literally simply has to get better just because. <laughs> yeah. I almost hope that, like, being that we're starting in July, that, you know, how they kind of start off, like, decent, and then June, July, they kind of, like, flatline, and they kind of come back in August. I kind of hope that being that the season is shortened by a whole lot, that they'll just kind of be, like, even mediocre the entire season. And I will be so happy if they are just mediocre. But, like, even Lugo, I feel like, is another guy that is so underrated. Based on his numbers alone last year, he was the second best reliever we had. Um, so I, I, he's also my second eye will be on him. Um, but like I said, they have to be at least mediocre for me to be happy this year. Yeah, Luke was the only thing that was good on the whole time. He's probably the second best pitcher in the whole damn team. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> – after the Grom, it was Seth Lugo. I think it was definitely the second best pitcher on that team. And you pointed out, I think, I will say in defense of Diaz, like, he was pretty good for the first two months until he had that game in L.A., as Evan Roberts pointed out on WFAN the last that couple of days. It, yeah. That one meltdown against the Dodgers, he was never the same after that game because, like, he, something in that game, like, broke him. And then hopefully the t- all this time off and a little bit of, like, heat from having all these guys behind it will push him to be a better pitcher this year. Yeah, no, he, he honestly was. Like, I remember actually at one point, like, he was actually automatic. Like, I remember at one point, Phillips, you and I were texting during a game one time where, you know, it was like, oh, let's get the game, just get the ball to Diaz and we get the win. Like, God, I was not <laughs> – it's actually crazy to think I was, like, saying that. Like, <laughs> but he was. Like, he's there. He's there. Like, he's not I, – I, I don't think he's Benitez, but, you know, you don't know. <laughs> One thing I'm intrigued about with him, and I'm curious about, Jill, if you agree with me on this, I think if they dejuice the baseball, I think he'll be a lot better. I think a lot of the problem with him was that he couldn't control the slider, and he was having trouble. It was not spinning. It was basically flat, and people just teeing it up and driving it out of the ballpark. I think if the ball was normal, I think he'll be a lot better. For sure. I think it's a problem that a lot of pitchers faced last year. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think that if 
the ball changes, then his game will change as well. Yeah, well, the good old juice baseball theory, I think that holds a lot of water for Diaz. <laughs> it is the fact, too. I mean, like, he, he, I, I, it's like he needs the slider. He pitches off the slider. Like, it's like anybody. If their best pitches in there, they're not going to do well. So I just, I, I, I think, like, everybody kept saying, what was it last year? Like, oh, all we kept hearing was, like, oh, the velocity is there, the spin rate, blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't know. I, I truly think that it was more of a case of, like, yeah, that game broke him in L.A., and he was just like, you know, the Boo Birds of City Field, they hang around a lot, so. <laughs> that should be a benefit for him because there's no fans there to boo him this year. That's what I mean. This year, yeah, like, like. I, I actually, honest to God, like I think it's kind of a cop out to be like, oh my God, the fans get out. I mean, I don't, like I bet you, you when you go from sleepy Seattle to New York, I'm sure it's definitely a bit of a freaking change. Yeah, this... you can bury a five run outing in Seattle a lot easier than you can do it in New York. Yeah, because you don't have, like, 15 talk radio stations, like, Reddit, like, Twitter, everybody going nuts about you in, like, 15 papers and no. seven news stations. No, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of adjustments. So you kind of, I kind of give him, as much as, as much as he pissed me off, I kind of, you got to give him a, give him a little buy here and let him, let him uh, dig him, you know, bring himself back up. Yeah, let's go to the rotation for a minute, too, because we started there. Like We started with Jake. We know what the rotation is going to be now that Syndergaard is out. Waka is fully in it. The question for me is, like, where do they go if somebody gets hurt? Because the odds of them getting all five guys through all 60 games are not great. Because just just a pure math of, like, somebody will get hurt, somebody will stink, and they'll need to be replaced. But, like, where are we going after this? Is David Peterson in there? Are we going to Corey Oswalt again? Are we going to Walker Lockett again? I'd be I'm surprised they haven't added another starting pitcher to this mix. I, I honestly just like I can't watch Walker Lockett pitch again. I honestly just put someone else at a position player. Don't pretend to anymore, but yeah, you know again, Matt, he's terrible. Like get someone who that's one thing that is definitely when when Noah went down, you just didn't. I don't know. Like, even just like a, a Felix Hernandez type, well, obviously, he's not playing that. But you get what I'm trying to say. Like, like there's such a speed drop-off, like you hinted at. So, and again, like, that is that could be, like, so detrimental in a season like this. You know what I mean? Like, you miss two turns with a guy, uh, like, the Grom, you know, you miss three, the Grom starts, don't even want to know what happened. Yeah. Yeah, I know, Jill. I know I listened to Brody Van Wagen yesterday. He was on with Evan Roberts on WFAN. He also talked about, like, one of the options they're thinking about for, like, if they need a starter is somebody like Lugo, like Robert Kesselman or Seth Lugo because they will have, like, they will be able to just stretch them out a little bit and have them start and then back them up with relievers. I think the Jared Hughes sign sort of gives them flexibility that they want to put one of them in the rotation they can. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is also the first year probably – in a handful of years that I'm actually concerned about this rotation since the Mets have typically had, yeah, at least one of the top five or so rotations in all baseball. So like, I'm actually concerned to see it, to see what will happen and how they perform. Um, obviously we know DeGrom is the most reliable, but if someone does go down, I think the first option to bring someone up would be Gazelman. Um, I think I, I would rather have him up and Lou go down and, you know, kind of take a chance at Diaz and Familia in the eighth and ninth. But it's, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how this is. Again, like I keep saying this is I really don't know how to make a prediction for this season, but it's really just going to be, you know, a game of cards at this point. Yeah, this season really is really, I think the key for this is just who stays healthy. That's really, I think, going to be the key to everything because 
We've seen the Braves have issues. We've seen the Nationals have had guys opt out. There's rumblings about Phillies camp about some things. And, like, right now the Mets are pretty healthy. I think that's huge. Don't jinx us yet, please. <laughs> Knocking on that wood again. <laughs> I really think that's my main concern because if DeGrom goes down, like Will said, and he misses Game even over. two starts, let alone three, that's it. We're done. Yeah. I mean, he's the biggest piece here. And not having Syndergaard is obviously huge, too, even though Syndergaard had a lackluster year last year. But, you know, I don't know. This year, it's already a letdown to begin with. So I think if, God forbid, there is an injury bug that goes around this uh, organization, it's going to be even worse. And I'm not really prepared to see what's going to happen. All right, let's go to the lineup for a minute. Will, give me your ideal lineup for the Mets, 1-9. to nine. We'll include the DH in there. So just tell me who's who's batting where. So uh, earlier this year, I actually was like jotting down Twitter because um, the Mets in the outfield. Uh, but now it looks a bit deeper. So you know, I got Nemo, McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, Seth, Davis, Cano, Ramos, Rosario. So I just don't know. I guess McNeil and Davis have interchange, right? Like this one play third, this one play outfield. I was more like, who the hell is playing where? Uh, yeah, it's not hard, you know. But yeah, I just that's playing uh, playing DH. But like, like I said, I just feel like it's a better team. I mean, I don't. Again, all things considered, it could be like, uh, you know, unable to literally play outfield. But I think it's a better team defensively if he's in the outfield and um, like you know, being able to get Dom in there. It's it's pretty righty heavy if you ask me. But of course, like it's so interchangeable on given the day and the starter and so on and so forth. But uh, that's like my ideal lineup, um, especially if Nimmo's healthy. I mean, we saw just how rabid she was with that injury last year. I mean, he, he was not even remotely close to the same batter that we had seen before. He's just striking out a ton and no power. Um, but if he's there, you know, that's a tone. Just get, I mean, like, like think of just getting a guy on base and send it ahead of a guy like McNeil can handle the bat so damn well. He can do so many things, hit and run. I mean, like, if all things go well, Alonzo, if this was a full 162, I mean, you're looking at 100 RBI seasons for Alonzo before they first get on base when they do ahead of them. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good construction, Will. And I agree with you on one thing. I'm curious about this is like, the Mets cannot put Cano third again this year. They can't. He has no. to be lower in the lineup because this group is too talented at the top. I I think you put him right behind Cespedes at six. That's where I think you start him. If he hits well, you can move him up. But, Jill, I don't know about you. I hope that Brody the ages not go downstairs and tell Luis Rojas, hey, put Cano third. He deserves it. Yeah, I'm just going to preface this by saying I'm, like, really bad at making lineups. So, like, never, ever called me to make your lineup. Um but this is all kind of like cool said contingent on who's playing where, what day. Um, but I kind of based it off of it being Cespedes and left because we all know that they're going to push for him to be in left. And then I have Smith as my DH. Um, so I have a Nimmo in center, McNeil at second, Alonzo at first. And this is kind of where I get a little dicey. Um, I don't really like the back-to-back of Alonzo and Conforto, but this can kind of be interchangeable. So either it'd be the DH spot, whether it be Smith or Cespedes, whoever, and then Conforto, or vice versa, Conforto, then the DH. Um, so, yeah, I kind of get a little dicey there. But let's say it's Smith at DH, Conforto and right, Cespedes and left, Rosario at short, and then I have Davis at third and Ramos as catcher. But then again, I'm really bad at making a lineup, so don't quote me on this. If I'm if I'm completely far off, 
please don't, please don't come after me. Please don't. I won't come after you, but I do. I think you're, you and I, I think we're all in agreement that Cano cannot be hitting third this year. Yeah, definitely Actually, not. One thing I want, like, I'd love to see as the season goes on is I just want to see Rosario actually become the leadoff hitter if he can. Because, again, just imagine him going to the top and then just pushing everything else down, how deep it gets. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, that's just, I, go, I want to see that. And, uh, but then again, you know, if the DH sticks around, which is going to, I mean, like, you're not, they're not going to collect the board this year and then not put it in the next one. So, I mean, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And I do think the Rosario thing, I think the issue with him is just the fact that he just doesn't walk enough. If he drew more walks, he'd be at the top no, of the lap right yeah. now with his speed, but he just doesn't. Exactly. He doesn't. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, and we'll go ahead a little bit. Like, I think, took a second here. I do think the one thing that's positive about this team is obviously A, the depth. I think B that they actually have somebody actually an idea how to manage in Luis Rojas, so at least he's managing the minor league level. Would not will not look clueless like Mickey Calway did at points last year. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like as a guy, it's just, like like the way things fell into his lap this off season. Like, you know, he's not. I, I don't peg him as a guy who's like that, right? Who's Mickey Calway? <laughs> so uh, I, I'm actually like. I, I like I wanted Bell to be the manager, but I tell you it's like a weird optimism here at Rojas where I'm kinda like I like actually expect like really good things. Like you said, he, he, the players are familiar with him. He, you know, knows what he is doing to an extent. So like I am actually very intrigued to see just what he does. It kinda reminds me of, you know, like a silent guy's gonna show up at the ballpark, you know. He's got a job to do, he's gonna do the job and uh, uh we're not gonna have wacky Awful yeah, yeah I think I have to agree like almost identically with what Will just said. I mean, I think the biggest thing that helps Rojas out this season in particular is the fact that he is coming from the minors with a much uh, shorter season than the bigs. So I think that's going to play in his favor because he'll know how to get the most bang for his buck if we're using money talk here. Um, if that makes any sense at all. I hope it does. Um, but yeah, I think his, his experience with the uh, shortened season in the minors and like Will said, his familiarity with a lot of the players is definitely going to be a selling point for him this year. Yeah, I will point out as as, like, as one of my experiences, I did get to listen to quite a bit of Luis Rojas' sound clips uh, over the past couple of months, and I will say, he has a far greater handle on like how to do this job than Mickey Callaway did, because there were points where Callaway would just talk, and you're sitting here like, what's he talking about? Like, why is he doing this? Like, no, no, no. Where- Every time he <laughs> Every time, I couldn't think of a time where I was like, that guy's making sense. Every time you're like, holy crap, does he even know where he is? Yeah. I remember last year, the one game where he intentionally walked a guy to get to Bryce Harper to, to, to clear. Something was like he walked a guy to get to a pinch hitter so they would oh, yeah, burn yeah, Bryce yeah. Harper. I'm like, that makes no yeah. sense. Yeah. Hey, you're dealing with, oh, God, I tell you, some of the things are just like absolutely just, you know, okay, well, I guess this makes sense if you're never managed before. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think he will have Rosal a much calmer clubhouse than Mickey did at points. I mean, isn't it kind of like just the general idea, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, yeah. Mickey just kept breaking it and fixing <laughs> it and breaking <laughs> it and fixing it, where it's like, yeah, you know, it's fine to pitch to the guy, you know. <laughs> Don't have to go and oh gosh, I tell you, he'd have a fit with the with the thing with three batter minimum, right? Yeah. Like, how would he get through that, and how 
I am excited. Well, if Mick if if Mickey was here, the bright side is he wouldn't have to double switch anymore because that because that's out of his hands now at the DH. But the problem is like I don't know how he played the tenth inning thing with the extra inning rule. I think he'd be awful at that. Oh, oh gosh, actually, <laughs> I kind of want to see it. Well, how about the fact that Tim Healy, who's also interviewed, you have him on this. You know, if you won't have to worry about thinking the manager's going to punch him in the mouth. Oh my a God. Good day. <laughs> Like, what the heck was that? Oh, God bless. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like, uh, that whole thing, that should have been it then. <laughs> but, hey, no Vargas and no uh, Mickey anymore. So he's really in the clear. People in the large right now. <laughs> yeah, no cartoon no cartoon fights in the clubhouse anymore. So now we can look ahead to this season. Let's all go around the horn. Get some X factors. Jill, give me your X factor for this season. All right, so I kind of have two here. And I think the biggest one might be DeGrom, because obviously he is DeGoat, as I like to call him every single time I post it on, on, online. Um, but I think his performance will definitely be indicative of how this team will overall perform. Um, and then the second one that I have, I think, has to be Alonzo, just because he is coming off such a great rookie season, so it's going to be interesting to see if he can kind of replicated in some sort of way in not only his second season but a shortened season so I think as long as he can perform I think that'll spark the rest of the offense which will then help DeGrom so it's kind of like a twofer in a way here um but yeah that's kind of my, my two big things here well who's your x-factor Seth I think it's easy you know like, like just think of what that guy does to this team if he's you know I, I'm not expecting 2015, 2016 run exception. No, but like just, just anything kind of around that, you know, just the middle of the order guy, dynamic hitter. I mean, forget the fielding, right? Like if he can't play well and left, I don't care. But if he can be a legitimate bat in the lineup and just, I mean, we have seen what this guy does. I, I, I tell people like, I mean, if you're a Mets fan, it, it better is like our age, our age, it's like, there's a few things you remember, and one of them is Cespedes becoming Babe Ruth for a month, and then Daniel Murphy becoming Babe Ruth for a month. So, like, I just Cespedes is unbelievable when he's healthy, and I think if that dude is capable of at least slotting into the lineup every day, there's a lot of great things that he can do, and this team can just, I mean, become even greater, you know, just just fly, just just go. I mean, that's one of the deepest lineups in in, in the division, you know, even in the, in the National League. So, I just, as you can tell, like I'm, I've wanted this guy to work out ever since he signed that deal, and I mean, I love the guy, I love him in Oakland. I just, I hope he can just become that dynamic middle of the order bat, just for at least maybe one more year. Yeah, I I think that's the right answer because obviously, like. You see the records. Like, when he plays, they win, and they win a lot. When he doesn't, they lose. That's usually the pattern with Cespedes. So, if he's there, I think they're going to win a lot. But for variety's sake, I will throw out Marcus Stroman because now there's a lot more pressure on him to be the number two behind Jacob DeGrom. He's in a contract year, and he was not great for the most part when he came over at the end of last year. You and I, Will, saw him in a start where he left at the three innings in person. And I think, like, Stroman has to actually step up and be much better than he was at the end of last year for the Mets to really have a shot this year. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, we just harped on all the starting pitching and stuff. I mean, he's the guy, right? That's the guy who, when he pitches to his capability, I mean, the dude's an ace. 
at least a, a, a 1B. Uh, so I don't expect, obviously, ace stuff, but I do expect a guy who's going to pitch to a lot of contact, do a lot of ground balls, not necessarily throw a ton of pitches because of that, and try to work deep into ball games and give this team a chance to win. And uh, it's so, like we said, we just like uh, before with Syndergaard being out and all these guys and the pitching depth, and uh, that is one massive must. It's that he should, he needs to pitch well and not kind of teeter totter like he did for a little bit last year. Yeah, indeed. Before we go to the predictions, before we wrap it up with that, we do I do want to touch on the ownership thing, man, because we are recording on the ninth. The first round of bids are in, and we do have some news on some of the people who are bidding today. Some people who have placed bids on the Mets, there's going to be a second round of bidding coming up in the next couple of weeks, but some of the little bidders this, this week, A-Rod's group bid, the Josh Harris group bid, and Steve Cohen himself has thrown a bid on the Mets, so he the dream is still alive, Jill. Stevie Cohen! Okay, so honestly, I just need someone who's competent to own this team and just do a better job. Because even this year, I feel like there's something really spectacular going into the season. Um, like, no spectacular moves being made, but I feel like Stevie Cohen's got those deep pockets, and I also kind of think his uh, role that he had previously, even though it was a minority ownership, I think that'll definitely play a factor as a persuasion type of factor here, just because he kind of will most likely know what's going on in the realm of ownership compared to like A Rod. Like that's not a knock at A Rod. Like it would be pretty cool to have him on the team, but like I think Cohen's current position with the team will be an edge, and also those deep pockets are just something that I cannot see past. Oh uh, yeah, we've talked about this off there plenty a lot, Bill, and uh, yeah, you know Mookie Betts looked freaking good on the Mets, and uh, you know, yeah, it just needs to happen because I need Mookie Betts, I need players, I need investment in analytics teams. I, as Jill said, I need someone who's got a damn brain and a nine in the pocket. You know, yeah. it's just come on, I am ready for it. Steve Cohen. Answer for Mets fans, like if we pick the donors, obviously Steve Cohen, because you take the billionaire who's fourteen, who's worth fourteen billion dollars as a as a diehard Met fan will spend whatever he has to get the best players here. That's the winner. But I think of everybody else, I'd still take the A Rod group over the over the Harris group because the Harris group I think seems like they're just in this to make a buck and flip the team, as opposed to actually like being really invested in making the team better. No, they're. Uh, I mean, they're just honestly, they're, they're probably just more confident version of the world ponds in my opinion. You see the teams that they own and just kind of what they are, right? Like, yep. you know, you're right. A lot of hearsay with that one. I totally agree. Yeah, well, we're all on the Stevie Cohen bandwagon. Hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll be throwing a party, that a social distance party that he's actually buying the team. But we'll talk about this this season right now. I'll go around the horn here. Jill, quickly, prediction, Mets do what this season? You know, I, I don't think I've sound all that optimistic throughout this, so I'm going to continue with that. I'm going to say, I'm going to lowball, and I'm going to say they're going to go 500, um, only because I feel like if I go any higher, they're going to disappoint me even more than usual. So, I, yeah, I'm going to go with the 500 finish, 
Uh, so I would rather be wrong and then do better than be, uh, you know, completely right and it just be totally bad. So, yeah, we're going 500. Will, what about you? Uh, I think just like, you know, kind of like that, like what they did last year, um, kind of mirror that as far as record-wise and understand the standings. Yeah, I don't, I just don't, I don't like, I don't know. This year, I'll be honest, I don't like really have lofty expectations. I'm not, it, it, it's just a year where I'm happy it's going to be here. I'm happy we get to watch baseball, but at the same time, like I understand what's going on. So I just think it's going to be a bizarre year and you know, those kind of end up around that same, uh, same number as last year. Obviously, not the complete number, but you know what I'm trying to say. Wasn't there under, what was their over under set at? Wasn't it like 30 something? I think it was like 32, I want to say, around there. Yeah, I could see within that 35 range for sure. Yeah, nothing, uh, I'm not going to go any crazy this year. Yeah. There's too much like secondary stuff going on. I think the sale, the new manager, all, you know, of course, what's going on in the world where, uh, Weird. I feel like a lot. It's a cop out, but I feel like a lot of predictions this year. It's just you gotta wait until you see it. You know, you gotta wait till that season rolls around. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I'm the optimist of the group here. I just feel like if there was ever a year for the Mets to do well, it would be this year when they can't have fans there, when they can't have a parade, they win anything. Like, I just feel like. Like, I feel like the way these things are trending, I feel like they can win the NL East, and I will pick them to do that. I, as of right now, my gut is they get to the LCS to lose the Dodgers. That's my gut right now at the Mets is where I have them at. Now, the only thing I have against that is that I feel like every time I've gotten my hopes up that high, they just let me down. And the thing is, when it comes to there being no fans in the stands, I think that actually plays against them. I think this team feeds off the crowd. I mean, Alonzo himself feeds off the crowd. And, you know, the team feeds off of Alonzo. So I think fans not being there is going to be so detrimental to this team. But at the same time, if they're not playing well, it could be helpful. So that's another one of those things where it can go either way. But I'm definitely leaning more towards that fans not being there is not going to help them at all. No, I was saying not that they don't help them. It's more of like it would be typical mess that like they do well in a year that the fans can't actually be there and participate in it. Oh, it would totally happen. Like, this is going to be the year where like everyone's going to be pretty wrong. They're going to win whatever version of the World Series is going to happen this year. And we're all going to be sitting here like, what the heck happened? And we can't do anything about it. Because that's, that's just the mess. Let's be real here. But again, like I'm not trying to get my hopes up that high. Because if I do, it's going to be soul crushing. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, I reserve the right to, I reserve the right to change happens. my mind on that, by the way. Like, I will... We'll, when we do our predictions <laughs> sure. next... We do our predictions for the base, on the baseball beat next week for the season. Hopefully, we're still doing that at that point. But we will... I'll, I'll reserve the right to change my mind on the Mets, depending on what happens between now and then. Fair. Fair enough. I mean, who, God, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, we just saw that scary thing with Tanaka, you know, like, it's just bizarre, man. I, I, I just hope it's just, I'm going to enjoy watching baseball, put it that way. I don't really, like, know how to act <laughs> with it. Like, what happens if I'm going to do in the World Series? Like, yeah. I don't know. It's like, you know what? And like you said, this will be the damn one that they win. We're like forever. I have to like constantly defend the fact that like there's still a world series. It's just again, these are all things I've already thought of because it's the Mets. It is the Mets. Never make it easy for you. Yep, it is the Mets. And since we are, I think, pretty well good with the Mets now, I think we it's appropriate we wrap up the fan forum with this. Come on and meet the Mets. 
Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. Because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side. Everybody's coming There we have it. Mets fan forum in the books. That's a great song. It's fantastic. <laughs> and I want to thank both of you guys for coming on. We'll go around the whole, do a little social media. Jill, how can people follow you on social media? They want to keep up with you. Um, I've been definitely using Instagram more lately. So I think my handle is at Jilly5. That's J-I-L-L-Y-Y and the number five, because obviously David Wright is all of my life. Okay. So you can follow Jill there. Will, how about you? How can people keep up with you on social media? Oh, yeah, on Twitter, just uh, H one. All right, there you have it. Thank you guys for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, up next, we're going to talk a little fancy baseball. The seventh inning stretch of the podcast with the great Alan Austin right after this. All right, we are in the seventh inning stretch of this week's podcast. We are talking some fantasy baseball on the podcast right now. Joining me to do that, so I talked about fantasy football with back in December. The great Alan Austin's here. Alan, how are you? Hi, Mike. I'm excited for this, you know, version of baseball this year. It's some sort of baseball, so I'll take it, and I'm very excited. Yeah, I am too. I am every day. I'm sort of like getting up, checking the Twitter, making sure things not going horribly wrong, knocking on some wood to make sure that we get some baseball. And I will say this is going to be the weirdest fantasy baseball season of all time. Oh, without a doubt. And I like you check every day for that. I don't know if you watch 30 rock. There's the old Liz lemon, shut it down joke Yeah, where one thing goes wrong, shut it down. And I keep waiting for baseball to just be like, shut it down. So I'm hoping we don't get there. I'm hoping, you know, obviously, if it really becomes a health issue, then obviously you need to do what's right. But if they can figure out a way and it's, it's kosher, I'm all for it. Yeah, the way thing, the way I said it last week and the way sense my of it is this. I feel like these two weeks, as, as we lead up to the actual game, they're the most important weeks here because I think there's a certain point where you can still, like, shut it down and say, we tried, it, the virus didn't let us, that's fine. But I think... If we're sitting here on July 23rd, the Yankees are playing a national, I think we are going to be in it for the long haul because they've got so much money on the line. They're going to try and power through as best they can. Yes, I completely agree. And you mentioned fantasy being odd. It's going to be, it's almost like if you were in a league where you felt like one guy was trouncing you every year, this could be the equalizer kind of season where everyone's closer. And I say that because Usually, I I feel, I don't know about you, everyone kind of understands the hitting stats, but it's usually the guys who win consistently master the pitching, and I feel like this year's version of fantasy pitching is just so random. I feel like there's almost no signs to it. It's maybe you load up on strikeout guys and hope to dominate that stat, but as for everything else, how do you really plan 
for a rotation in a 60-game season when the teams don't even necessarily know what they're going to do. Yeah, that's true. And before we go into more of this year's interesting challenges, give me a little bit of your backstory with the fantasy baseball. Like, how many leagues do you usually do? Like, what kind of format do you like to play? I So, my history with fantasy baseball is relatively new. I've been playing for, I guess, about, I'd say close to seven, eight years now. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's there are people who've been playing a lot longer than I have. I remember a friend's dad who used to tell me about their old rotisserie leagues. And, you know, it's just, uh, it was done a lot different. But I've been in this one big money league consistently the last, oh gosh, I think it's, I think this will either be year seven or year eight, but I was playing a year or two before that. But this is my bread and butter. It's the only one I play anymore. I put my heart and soul into it, but one thing we do that I have learned to love and I never want to go back is having an auction draft. So this league has an auction draft. It has keepers. You could, The first three you keep are plus three on top of the price you paid from the year before, then plus six, plus nine, and so on. So that's how we build our league. We That's how our rosters are set. And this league is my own league. Like I said, I'm focused on it. So that's where I'm at with fantasy i used to play DraftKings here and there not going to do that this year planning for a wedding can't just throw money away so i'm in this league this is my bread and butter i've never won it i believe the highest i've ever come in was third but yeah it's a tough league it's tough yeah my league like i run on the commissioner of the league which is a like 12 team head-to-head like a keeper league, and we've been playing for about eight years. I have one title to my name. I won back in 2017, and I've got a second couple of thirds in there as well. And our league's been an interesting spot because we actually, due to scheduling issues, we actually did our draft on March 8th before all this craziness happened. So we've been sitting on our players for a long time waiting to find out what happened. Did you? I'm sure you guys did not get a chance to draft before the shutdown happened. Oh, we did. We drafted on March 16th, and... I remember everyone, there was a sense in the room that it was almost like a waste of time, so to speak. <laughs> like, it was like, why are we doing this now? We know it's going to go downhill. Uh, we did a social distance draft for the first time, which was super lame because I love getting together one day out of the year. Everyone goes to this one guy's apartment and we draft, and it's a lot of fun. This year we did it over Zoom. And it just wasn't the same. This whole season hasn't felt the same. And I don't know about you, but I look at my roster and I'm not jazzed about it because I feel like no one really knows what's going on. So I think this year more than ever, the waiver wire will be like your saving grace as opposed to just your depth and spot start filler. I think the waiver wire is going to be what wins the league this year. Yeah, I think it will be very critical how you manage your waiver wire. I think I'm I'm curious how your league is adjusting to this thing. Is our league there's only like nine regular season weeks. We usually don't play the last week of September because we figure okay, teams are not going to arrest anybody. It's too random. But this year we have to play because there's so few games. So what we are doing is we basically split our league into two divisions. We have six teams in each division, six week regular season schedule. We play your five division teams once, one team from the other division. And eight teams are going to make the playoffs where we play out to award the top three. That's the plan we have been going with. We've also increased our roster sizes a little bit. We added more injured list spots and like not available spots for guys who opt out. 
Have you guys thought about how you're adjusting your schedule, your season to try and make account for the shortened year? Yeah. Well, one thing we don't do is matchups. Uh, our seasons are rotisserie style, just you're averaged out. And if you have the best numbers in each statistic at the end of the year, that's how you finish in the standings. So we don't really have to worry about matchups per se. So it's pretty much standard. The only things we're changing are uh, we're having a, a different trade deadline. We're, we're matching it up with the actual season trade deadline. And we are still voting on whether or not we are going to go for the main pool of the big money or if we're going to give everyone their main entry feedback and just pay for We usually do a side bet as well where it's $10. So we don't know if we're going to just make this season for lesser money. So we're still discussing that. But as for the actual playing of the game, one of the things we did was add IL spots. So our commissioner went in and allowed six IL spots per team to account for possible COVID designation. Yeah, we also, we did go, we used a league voting. We reduced our money buying. We usually play for like one amount. We cut it in half because you make it like, since it's more of a crapshoot, this this format where you don't know like if right. it's going to happen. We we also expanded our postseason and said, you know what, like get more teams in there. Six weeks usually long to figure out who the worst four are, and then we'll bring the eight in. And we'll just see what happens from there. Yeah, we're also not doing so. Usually, whoever finishes in last loses a three dollar keeper the next season, and we're not doing that either because of what you just said. It being a little bit of a crapshoot, so we usually have a playoff. To see, you know, we have a consolation prize. That's not happening either because the season's so short. So pretty much it's just going to be a sprint to the finish with normal standings, no bells and whistles, and we're just going to, like, hope it's fun. Yeah, I think it will be interesting at the least to see how this plays out. Actually, you brought it up with the starting pitchers, and, I mean, it's going to be such a challenge because there will be varying levels of people built up to what degree. Because we've had Jacob DeGrom on the Mets say, I should be good to throw six innings on the opening day. Steven Matt, same thing. Whereas you might have guys who can't get out the third inning yet. So it'll be interesting to see how you play your pitching. What is your plan for that situation? Well, my plan that I want to do now does not match up with the draft I had. Like, one pitcher I love for some of the side stats, the, the, not side stats, so the way our league is, so let me just tell you where I'm basing my logic is. We have five hitting stats, five pitching stats. The five pitching stats are quality starts, ERA, whip, Ks, and saves. Now, the quality starts stat is useless at this point because every starter is only going to have X amount of starts. So it, it, they're not having 30 start seasons. And because of the like the, the second spring training, like you just said, there we might be lucky if the aces can go six early on. So if you're taking away a couple starts at the beginning for most pitchers to not even go six, the quality start is useless, in my opinion. So it's really my strategy is bulk up on strikeout pitchers, guys who have high K per nine, guys who uh, – and closers – Try to get as many closes as you can. We only allow for possible four that you can start on one day, whether it be from the regular pitcher or closer role. So I would say my pitching strategy is to go for strikeout pitchers and closers and hope that you get, a, you know, the, the ERA, the whip. If you, got, if you get good 
those are side stats. You're always going to have to go, but I would avoid the wins and quality starts aspect and head for strikeouts and saves. That would be where I focus my pitching attention. Yeah. You got to hope that ERA and whip are, you know, just kind of something that happens because you're drafted and your pitchers are, you know, good on paper and, and that'll come. But I would say make a concentrated effort to get more saves and more strikeouts. Yeah, I think that makes sense. My, I, obviously, I drafted already, and obviously, I have a team. But I feel like everyone's going to a draft now. I would try and get one ace, and then just do what you do, and just load up on the guys, strike people out, look for people who can strike out a batter in an inning, look for guys who have like low whips, low ERAs, and can and can basically go for this, go for kind of like the streaming relievers that can be more valuable this year than you're like your third or fourth starter on some teams. Absolutely. If if this was a couple of years ago, I'd say the perfect guy would be that Andrew Miller swing type. Get those guys. Now, no one's as dominant now really as like an Andrew Miller was then, but there are diamonds in the rough. And if you look at some of these teams, you're going to find guys. You're going to find them. You're going to get them. And they're going to eat up the middle innings and hopefully get four to six strikeouts in two to three innings. And that will be what gets you over the hump, in my opinion. Yeah, just just thinking of a guy on the Mets who we just talked about on this podcast, Seth Lugo, I think it's a perfect target for fantasy owners this year because like he's got pitch multiple innings, he strikes people out, he gets he keeps his ratios low. He's a guy who could be really valuable in fantasy week winners. I agree. My only knock on Lugo is the no back to back nights. Yeah. But he still can go every other night and in a season where I don't think starters are as valuable, he definitely fits the mold of what we're talking about. Yeah. Who are some other kinds of pitchers that you would be looking at right now? Say, these are the kinds of guys I want. Now, one of the guys I'm going to mention isn't necessarily a swing guy. He is a starter, but he fits the mold of what I was talking about. And it's high strikeouts. And he's from my favorite team, the Tigers. And he came on the scene last year. And that's Matthew Boyd. I think of Matthew Boyd type where he's going to get strikeouts. You know, he's going to eat innings because the team is young. They're, they're, they're going to struggle. I hate to say it, they're going to struggle, but this guy's going to be on the mound whenever he can be, and he's going to rack up Ks. He's got a nasty slugger. I really love Matthew Boyd to be that kind of pitcher that, especially on the East Coast, not every team, not every league is going to be in a rush to sign, to pick up, find him, get him, roster him, start him, and you'll get strikeouts and innings for sure. Yeah, he's somebody I'd be very intrigued by. I do have another Tiger pitcher, Spencer Turnbull, who I drafted, and I do, I'm do not as high on him in this form. I may look to swap him out for somebody else. I have Turnbull on my roster too, but with this new season the way it is, I have zero confidence in that. Yeah. That's not a knock necessarily on him. It's just based on what I've seen. I'm not in love with that pick based on how the season's playing out. Yeah, for me, like, my lucky thing is, like, I did draft a lot of guys who strike out a ton of people. Like, I have Mike Miner, I have Julio Urias, I have DeGrom, obviously, he's my kingmaker. But I did have, at the time, I did draft some closers, like Brad Ham, like Alex Colome, like Daniel Hudson. I got Daniel Hudson, another guy who could be useful in that category. Stuff, I, I do always kind of go for those guys who rack up the strikeouts. Yes, I have Nick Anderson from the Rays, who I'm, I have high hopes for this year. Yeah, that was a bad choice on the Marlins to let him go as well. Oh, my goodness. You've got that right. Yeah, I just want to mention another pitcher who burst onto the scene last year. And I don't know about you, but I'm a huge following the minor leagues guy. I follow the minor leagues 
pretty closely and I knew he was going to be good. And when he got traded, I thought, what are they doing? Another Marlins trade where I'm like, how are they going to let this guy get away? Zach Gowan. Yes. I think if you do want to pick up somebody who will be phenomenal ERA and whip, won't be a high strikeout guy per se, but he will be the whip and ERA starter type. Zach Gallon is your guy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's shift to the hitting side a little bit. And I think one thing is important about when you're building a roster for hitting wise, I think like this year, especially, I think you need depth. You need versatile guys who can put in multiple spots in your lineup because any day you could have like one of your players like test positive and be out for a couple of weeks. And then what are you doing to fill that spot? I think you need to have lots of options to give yourself a chance here. Absolutely. And baseball is not like football in that you, you go for the replacement guy. You know what I mean? Like when, when football, when your running back goes down, you pick up his backup or you try to baseball is a lot trickier because the drop off from starter to bench player is not like it is in football. You know, football, they're still going to get reps. They're still going to get touches. But in baseball, you have to be good. And a lot of times the replacement's just not going to give you the same production. Therefore, I think this is the season where you look at the teams you never thought you'd look for. The Mariners, the the Tigers, the teams who are really struggling, but the guys are going to get to play every day. Those are the guys you got to look at, not the guys who might platoon. Like, so I'm going to go another Tiger here because he's very versatile. He's multi-position. He's coming off an injury, but he's going to play every day. And that's Nico Goodrum. Nico Goodrum can play the outfield. He can play the infield. And if you're lucky enough to roster him, if someone goes down, he's the kind of guy I want to have. He's going to play every day. He's multiple positions. He really is versatile. And I really love those versatile, multi-positional athletes for this season specifically. Yeah, I also keep an eye on teams that, especially the NL is interesting where you have the DH edge and there are at bats created that would not have existed or narrow for people. So like my example with the Mets, like you went to Cespedes, obviously gains much more value. He's able to play because he can DH. J.D. Davis is another guy that can play third or the outfield. He also gets some reps there. Dom Smith, like people like that will be on fantasy roster this year just because the, the opportunity will be there. Plus, he's not going to want to push their guys go, go, go from the jump because they're not going to be risking injury as much. Absolutely. And I just want to point out one other name because he's kind of a, he's always what seems like on the bubble of superstardom, but he never really gets the chance. And I think this year with the way the rosters are and on this team, the Cubs, he is probably going to get a real shot. And that's Ian Happ. Always liked Ian Happ's game. Another guy who could play multiple positions. And I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of, you know, knocks down that door and says, I'm here to stay as a bona fide major leaguer who can play every day, but I still only consider him that depth guy for now. So these are Nico Goodrum, Ian Happ are the guys who fit what I feel are what you were talking about. You need depth in case someone goes down. These are some of the names I'd give a look to. Yeah, one guy who's on my team, I feel like it also fit this this uh, initial, is David Fletcher on the Angels. He came out late last year, hit 290. Has, has a little bit of pop, a little bit of stolen bases, and he has eligibility second base, third base, shortstop, and the outfield. That's some. That's the kind of guy you want to have on your roster this year. Absolutely, because it's the kind of it's the kind of utility guy. That's what I was talking about early on when I said the waiver wire is going to win you your season. Guys are going to go down. Not to mention regular injuries will happen. Just because COVID's a thing doesn't mean other injuries and other ailments. I mean, the Yankees are already familiar with Masahiro Tanaka, like. 
you need depth now more than ever. It is so vital. And if you're not paying attention to who's available on that waiver wire and who's having good days, you're going to be, you're going to be in last place or close to it. Yeah, especially like in this shorter season where in a regular year, if a guy hurts his oblique in the fifth game of the year, you're okay, okay, he's out two months, he'll be back in June. But if he hurts his oblique game five this year, he's out for the season for you pretty much. Essentially, yes. And that's why I would keep an eye on the AAA. Now, the 60, I don't know how the minor league is going to work. I don't know if they're just going to go to an extended summer camp all season and just kind of like that's basically be it. at the ready. Okay. I would keep an eye on who's on everybody's 60-player pool. Have that list at the ready whenever you need it to know exactly who you should be eyeing to pick up. Yeah. So I think knowing every team's 60-player pool is another little hack you can add to your repertoire to be ahead of the game this year. Exactly. You also have to look at it, too, in terms of like the motivation for these teams, whereas a team like the Mets... They have a lot of guys in there who they think can help them win right now. Like Melky Cabrera is in the pool now. You figure he would get time if somebody goes down with an injury. Whereas a team like the Tigers or the Orioles, they might bring a prospect up. So that'd be some, you might be adding them instead of a guy who's a little bit of big league time. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. You have, to, you have to kind of know the motivation of these teams. And speaking of motivations, we'll talk about the players a little bit because obviously – the opt-outs are a concern. We've seen some players opt-out, right? like David Price has opted out, Nick Barkake has opted out, and we have people who are on the fence, like Mike Trout, and Trout said, I'm going to go, but you know, like he's obviously going to take paternity leave when when his baby is due. He's going to be out for probably at least like a week, 10 days. Like, Do you downgrade Trout at all if you're drafting today off of the first pick? You have to. Yeah. There's no way around it. The guy is literally saying I will miss at least X amount of days. And in a 60 game season where someone is saying they are going to miss time and they're unsure about the whole season, that has to play into consideration. You have to take that into consideration. And if I were a Mike Trout owner right now, I would be cautiously optimistic. And I say that because MLB is going to do whatever they can. They are going to twist however they need to, the arm of Mike Trout to play this year. You can't, MLB cannot afford to not have Mike Trout take the field. So I do think he will play, but it's better. You got to take into consideration the paternity leave. And, you know, is it going to be a thing where he leaves to be with his family and then he has to re-quarantine or something like that? I don't know how it's going to work. Do you know how that works? Like if a player has to leave the team, go to their family when they come back what's the protocol for letting them back in the clubhouse letting them back around the other guys i, be- I don't know I, I believe it's two negative tests in a row i think I, like you have, you have to pass in order to come back in and is there like a specific amount of time i think it's like first and second test i think it's like has to be like at least i think like within i think like within 72 hours i think as don't quote me on that okay so there, there's a little uncertainty there, but I think if you already have Trout, and if let's say you haven't drafted yet, if Trout falls to you in the middle of the first round, take you got to take him. You got to take him. Like, there's no way around it. But if I have the first overall pick, I'd probably look elsewhere. Yeah, where would you go? I would think somebody like Raccoon or Mookie Betts probably be your two considerations at one if you're not going Trout. Yeah, I would say Acuna. Acuna would have to be up there. Uh, Moogie Betts, another one. Yeah, any of the other just slam dunk guys you go with, especially guys who are 
full steam ahead, it seems. And, and Betts and Acuna are definitely two of those guys. Yeah, I also think in terms of the guys opting out, I think you as an owner, I mean, obviously you don't blame the players. Like, at their choice. So, like, if they at some point feel like, you know what, this is not for me, I'm I'm out. Obviously, you can't blame them. But, like, as if, if you're playing fantasy, it's something you have to be aware of. Whereas, especially I keep an eye on teams where, like, if – like down the stretch, let's say a team like I don't know. I'll give me give me a random team with content. Let's say the Washington fades out of the race for some reason. What's to stop Max Scherzer saying, you know what? Like I made my money. I'm good. I don't have to piss the rest of the season. I'm opting out in mid September. That's something you would have to worry about if you're a fantasy owner. For sure. And while I don't think that would happen with Scherzer per se, some it could happen. Some think players. It's a real. It's definitely going to happen. It's definitely going to. I mean, no fans are going to be in the stands anyway, right? Yeah. The TV contracts, they're, they're, they only get you so much. And, well, not, not that they only get you so much. I'm saying the fans at home, if your team's out of it in September in this season, you're probably not going to be watching religiously anyway, hypothetically. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not talking the extreme fan. So I think it will happen. And just to go back, I think over Acuna and Betts, I would take Yelich. Yeah. I have, but, I have Yelich myself. I'm very happy with that pick. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. So I do think that's a real concern. So maybe you got to draft your, maybe if you haven't drafted yet, you got to look towards the teams who you think will contend. And then for the teams who won't contend, use those guys as your depth because they're going to be hungry as well. Yeah, exactly. I feel like the younger players also a value play here because they'll get, they'll get reps and they are going to be motivated to finish this out because try and set something up for themselves for the future. So the ones you worry about is like the established star on the bad team. That's the ones I would be concerned about because at some point, like if they're completely out of it, you say, what What am I doing here? Why am I wasting my, my time? I'll get ready for next season. Especially pitchers. Yes. Like especially, so I do think, yeah, that is a valid concern. Yeah. All the fun things you have to think about in fantasy baseball this year, but I will say it will be a fun challenge seeing how this plays out because it really, I think it's going to put the – Good managers of the test and really like, bring out the cream of the crop. The guys who are actively like maneuvering, keeping an eye on the reports every day, keeping an eye on numbers. I think the cream of the crop fantasy baseball owners will emerge this year. Yeah, and, and more so than ever before, the top-notch prospects who probably wouldn't have hit MLB this year, if you have them, you might as well keep them on the roster because they may be coming up. Yeah. They may be making appearances because they are losing a year of development. This is their development. And especially the teams that are out of contention later on, I could totally see their stud minor leakers being called up and taking some taking some reps. Yeah, like our fantasy league, the one I run right now, is basically we have I we keep three players every year and there's also one slot reserved for a minor league player. Like my minor league right now is Jared Kelnick, the former Met prospect who got traded to Seattle. If the Mariners arrive, I could see them calling up the last two weeks of September saying, here, kid, have a shot. See what see what that's worth. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean he'll be back in 21, but I do see guys like that getting playing time this season. Yeah, a lot of interesting factors to consider. And I will say, I'm looking forward to this fantasy baseball year. I mean, I already did the draft, so I, I've been sort of keeping my guys up to date on what we're doing. We're getting ready to go, and we're just hoping that the – the world around us cooperates. Well, that's the thing. I hope we're not having this discussion again next season. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I know it should go without saying, but unfortunately it's not, it's not. 
wear your mask, people. Please, please wear your mask. We need, and not just for sports, for your fellow man, for your fellow woman, wear the mask. It's not political. It's health. It's a health thing. Please understand that. It's, it's silly. It's just so silly, Mike. And it's stuff like this, which is why the rest of the world gets delayed. It does because it's, there's a reason why, like, when we usually talk about TV, when you've been on here, like, there's a reason why, like, almost nothing is in production right now because it's still not safe to do a lot of these things. I mean, California is the epicenter of, like, the West Coast right now. And that's, and LA with the production hub, a lot of the, you're not going to get a lot of new shows on the air in the fall. No. And if there's no sports and no new shows, everyone, and I mean, everyone besides myself, is going to be able to quote every office episode. Yeah. Or, what, or whatever happens in the debates. That's also going to be. The other thing people we talk about all the time. Yeah, and quite frankly, Mike, I'm I am just I need sports. <laughs> I put it, I'll put it that way. I need sports. Yeah, I do need sports. And speaking of the, the next season, there was some breaking news today on date of recording. In typical MLB fashion, they released the 2021 schedule before we even played a 2020 game. Like, I, let me just say, I always have a problem with MLB releasing the season after the, the next season schedule before the season is over, the current season. I hate it every year because it's like, I'm enjoying this season. Why, why, why do you have me thinking about next season? This would be great to release before the season to get me excited. Like, there should be a schedule day, maybe like the Thanksgiving week, where they release the schedule to get everyone thinking about baseball for a day during the off season when it's not hot stove stuff. I just think it's silly. Like, what? whatever. But one thing I noticed that I love is the 9-11 game that will happen next year. Yeah, the, Met, the Yankees and Mets will be playing at City Field on September 11th, 20th anniversary. Great job by MLB, but they need to do the right thing. Let them wear the hats for the first responders that game. That's something they fight over every year, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, well, I, I hate to say it, but it should be up to the team. Like yeah, if they, they want to do that for that game. They want to do I, it. I don't hate to it's say the, it. It's the way it should be. The, the, the problem is they want to do it. The league says no every year. Well, right now, I, I love baseball. It's my favorite. It's my passion. I think baseball is being run into the ground by its leadership right now. And it is sickening. And if it's gonna, if they want to wear the FDNY NYPD hat and they don't let them, shame on you, MLB. Shame on you. Yeah, Rob Rob Manfred, not not a favor of this podcast for one. I will say that. As far as your point <laughs> on the schedule being released every year, like in July, like late July, early August, I get why they do it because a lot of people do plan trips out around the MLB season, and it's easier to do that the further out you know it. So, like, I have friends we know who go to baseball stadiums across the country. They will look at that thing and say, "Okay, I could plan my trip here, 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 and here." It's harder to do that if you're waiting till like November or you're doing in the winter meetings to plan those trips out. That's fair. That's the reason I defend them on that because I get, and it's also for the teams who are going nowhere this year. You can say, "Hey, look around the corner. You have a new season coming up." For sure. Well, well just uh, switching back to, to fantasy for this season. Do you think the the ace pitchers will still be what they are on a smaller scale, or do you think even they will be diminished value-wise? Because I think even the aces will be diminished from what they usually are. I paid over $40 for Jacob DeGrom, which is a lot in my league, but I will not get that value no matter how good he is, I feel. I think relative to the rest of the pool, I think they're going to be worth it because I think the odds of getting something out of your Jacob DeGrom, your Garrett Coles are much higher than you are of getting it out of like 
your two to three star. I think it's the aces, then the top relievers, then you start filling in the rest of the pitching pool. Well, then I'm relieved to hear you say that because I have a couple aces. I have Patrick Corbin, who's an ace type. I think, you know what I mean? When Obviously, yeah. when you're behind Strasburg and Scherzer, I'm saying if he was on another team, he'd be the ace. So I've got Corbin, I've got DeGrom. I'm hoping for the best here. Yeah, my ace in the hole is I have Shohei Otani as a pitcher, so that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Now he's actually healthy and we're ready to go when the season starts. And he's walking eight guys in inter-squad games. Yeah, so that might not be great for me. We'll see how that goes. But, Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. You And just to give people a hint, I'll only be back next week. I won't tease what it is yet, but stick around later in the pocket to find out why Alan's coming back on. It'll be exciting. It will be very exciting. It does also involve baseball. Yes, it does. We will talk about that off the air more, but people I'll find on social media, how can they keep up with you? Sure. On Twitter, it is at Allen, A-L-L-E-N underscore Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N underscore, at Allen underscore Austin underscore, and on Instagram, it is at Allen Austin Sports. It does sound great. I also hear you have a YouTube show out now. Oh, yes, I do. It is the Alan Austin Show on YouTube. We're one episode in. The second episode will be released next week. It is a comedy sports talk show, and I'm looking to gain a, uh, an audience. Please check it out. Yeah, you can ch- and that's on YouTube, correct? That is on YouTube. The, the, you could just search the Alan Austin Show, and my channel name is Alan Austin. All right, there you have it. Be sure to check that out, folks. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you so much, Mike. Always a pleasure. Play ball. Play ball. Up next, we're actually going into pop culture here. Our great, great John Stankos coming up next. We're diving into the John Wick trilogy right after this. We are back here wrapping up the podcast, doing some pop calls this week, diving into the world of John Wick with probably the biggest John Wick stand on the planet. Another John, our movie critic, John Stanko. John, how are you? I'm perhaps a lot of John for one sentence. I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Doing pretty good. I was trying to confuse the listeners there with the older Johns. Yeah, I made it count in that sentence. I mean, to be fair, his name, he's also referenced as Jonathan in the films as well. And my, my full name is Jonathan. So you, one, you could say that me and John Wick are the same person. This is true. You are like the alternate universe version of John Wick. Oh my God! I if only if only if only I was as cool as John Wick. I I'm sorry. I wouldn't be on the podcast with you. I'd be solving international conspiracies all across the globe. Yeah, but then again, you could also say you're cool for for social media purposes in terms of your day job. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Like, can you imagine a John Wick character running uh, an Icy Gale social media account? That'd be but that'd be like a like a satire SNL skit of putting John Wick behind a desk. Hey, and John and John Wick material was used to promote an Iona home game this year. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, you stole a thunder of a point I was going to make, but for sure, the John Wick soundtrack has made a couple rounds in in highlights and material here. So, it, and guess what? It's going to be used in the future as well. I'm sure it will. And I will say, it was. I've been working down that DVD queue gaming column months back. I got through all the wicks. I got through Star is Born last week. I, you were right about that. I was weeping at the end, as you said. I would. You're 
You're goddamn right. That cut to Bradley Cooper, the singing uh, on the piano during that final song. Oh my oh, god! Oh my god! What he Literally, that all, was a puddle. All the feels at once. Oh, I cried five times in that movie. Yeah. I cried. I can tell you because I cried uh, when she sang Dallas for the first time. I cried when Bradley Cooper and her talked in therapy. I cried when Bradley Cooper said that he stole the voice of his brother. I cried when Bradley Cooper hung himself. And then I cried during the final song. Those are the five times I cried. Yeah, it was definitely right there in a couple of those, including like right at the end where he does hang himself. And I know this technically is a spoiler for uh, a spoiler for A Star is Born, but... Oh my God, this movie came out two years ago, three years ago. Come on. I know. I know that, but like, obviously, you know me, I'm a big dog person. I see the dog laying outside the garage when he's about to hang himself. I'm like, oh man. Yeah, I'm not a dog person, but it didn't affect me. Though, to be fair, the person I walked it with the first time, she wept into a puddle because of the dog. So she was right there. I was not focused on the dog. Yeah, you were focused on Bradley Cooper. I was focused on, on the tone, and yes, I was focused on that. Yeah. We'll go back to the Wick thing now. So, John, like, I John Wick one, two, three. I I had the interesting experience. I basically watched them three weeks in a row. I guess as soon as I got the DVD, I popped it in, watched them, watched some special features, sent them back. What did you get into the John Wick franchise? Man, I got in right from the get go. I was there in 2014 when this came out. I saw and I pushed this franchise on absolutely anybody who would listen. Mike, this movie is it's literally made for me. It's action that is self-aware, it creates its own universe without treating the audience like it's stupid. It treats the audience like it's smart and lets it figure out its own rules. And also it pays homages to other styles of movies as well, like samurai, like Western movies, like other action movies. This, the John Wick universe was made for Jonathan Stanko, and I got in right from the get-go in 2014. Yeah, I can do this, but... And also, I could see why I watched it. I'm like, this is totally the John Stanko like fantasy world here. Is the John Wick world? Like, I could see John having so much fun. You got to play in that world. Oh my god! I, I, I if like if I had action figures, I would I would create myself in the John Wick universe. No joke. If I was a kid watching John Wick, I would probably like make myself an assassin, befriend John Wick, and we we kick crime together, and we meet up for big missions. Like, I would 100 percent do that. And I'd lie to you if I haven't fantasized about doing such things while I'm on runs and stuff like that. But yeah. it's, it's made for me. I love John Wick. Yeah, and for the uninitiated, can you give me the brief elevator pitch on the sort of the story, like the world John Wick is in? I mean, I so in all transparency, I wrote out this very flowing and over-colorful synopsis that I was going to read as the elevator pitch. But the, just imagine a man who is in a life that he excels at but doesn't feel satisfaction. He finds love. That love is taken away. And then the only reminder of that love is brutally killed right in front of him, just days after the love of his life dies. And then this man of conviction, of respect, is now filled with rage and revenge and a sense of duty. And he will do anything to fulfill those sentiments that are within him. That is John Wick in a nutshell. Yeah, and the thing that that the thing that he loses that basically starts the rampage in the next three movies is a dog, which I do want to call you out on because you said you are not a dog person, and John Wick is the probably the biggest dog guy in pop culture I've ever seen. So how do you reconcile that as the, somebody who's notably gone on record saying as he hates dogs? 
Okay, so I don't hate dogs. Here's the thing. I'm going to come clear on this. This is anyone who knows me is listening to this. I am not a dog pet person. I will, if I have a choice in life, I will never own a pet dog. This is a fact. Now, I know if I'm dating someone or if, God forbid, I get married someday, God bless that woman, whatever that is, <laughs> I, I may need to get a dog because I'm not going to have a choice. And I understand that. However, I will never have a pet dog myself. But with that being said, I understand it as a plot device and as people being, being very connected to dogs that this would be very emotional for John Wick. And it wasn't just about the dog. It was about the sentiment of that his wife, who died suddenly, sent this as a token of her love to, because she knew him so well that he needed something to care for. And that thing was taken away from him. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I understand from your point now how you view it, and I do love it. It drives the thing. I love his his new dog. He picks it up to it at the end of the first movie. He rescues the dog from being euthanized the pound, and the dog basically is his best friend for life, the best trained dog I've ever seen, too. Also, can we talk about how the pit bull at the end of John Wick 1 is the perfect animal to represent John Wick? He is a quiet, stern-looking dog, but John Wick, is a killer at heart. He's dangerous at heart. If you get on his bad side, he will come after you, which is like a pit bull. He's also very disciplined. He's very good at what he does. He obeys by a set of rules. And rules are very key motifs to John Wick Universe. And his dog, which has no name, obeys all the rules that John Wick tells him to. So again, a very fitting dog for the for, for John Wick, the character. Indeed, we're not going to waste time summarizing the movie because you got to watch them yourself. The plots, the plot is really kind of inconsequential. You're really in there for the fight scenes, the action, all that good yeah. stuff. So quickly, sure, but I have a funny story. I have a funny story about the dog. So before we close out on the dog, sure. can I tell the funny story? Sure, go ahead, tell the dog story. Oh. I'm dating. Uh, I'm dating someone she's never seen John Wick before, and we're, we're at her family's house, and and we're going to watch John Wick. She says, "All right, I'll watch John Wick with you tonight," and I go, "Yeah, I'm so excited." Now, I know she's a huge dog person, massive, old pet dogs, foster's dog, huge dog person. So I knew the scene was going to absolutely rip her apart and shock her. We're out of campfire half an hour before we're going to start watching this movie. And her neighbor, we're talking about John Wick, and her neighbor goes, wait, is that the movie where the dog dies in the first 10 minutes? <laughs> and I go, no. And my girlfriend looks at me and goes, you are going to make me watch a movie where a dog died? <laughs> and, and we did not watch John Wick because this neighbor, it was like, an, it was like a, like a 13 year old girl that obviously like no ill will at all, but just completely took John Wick away from my girlfriend and I, that experience of watching it together. But it's a very funny story to tell. It is funny. And now you will never get to experience it with that girlfriend. No, I no, I will not. No, I don't think she's ever going to watch John Wick. But I will, every time I talk to her, I'll let her know she still needs to see it. Yeah, so speaking of that, but now we got now we got the funny story out of the way. I do enjoy, I did enjoy that story. Let's quickly power rank them, like, in terms of best to worst. And that's really relevant because they're all very good. So what order are you watching them in if you had a pick? No, I mean, I watched you watched them in order they came out. But if I were to power rank them, I would go John Wick Chapter 2 is the best. Followed by John Wick Chapter 3, followed by the original. So I go 2 3 1. Yeah, I think that's an interesting call. I think I would actually go reverse. I go 3 2 1. Okay, some people have said now, I have, there are definitely some elements of 3 that I like more than Chapter 2, but I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. But I, I'm pretty satisfied that Chapter 2 is the best overall movie. 
Yeah, I would agree that the, the runtime is tight on two, and you got a good motivation there. You got a lot. You got the good backstory of the elements of the assassin world in two. You get a lot more information in there. It gets expanded in three. I think that does enhance the movie a little bit. I think chapter two is the best story of the three. Well, maybe besides one, but chapter two blends the action with the story best. I think chapter three has the best action set pieces. They have has some of my favorite fights in the entire franchise, but the story does go a little bonkers in some places. And even I was like, this is, this is far fetched. This is a little weird, but chapter two was a perfect blend of story and action. Yeah, I think my ranking is based more on the action because yeah, three has the best action throughout because the types of different fights you're getting throughout three are very interesting. One is basically like you're getting gung fu the gun fu the entire movie basically, and you're getting fights with ninjas in three. You're getting all sorts of crazy stuff happening in there. That stuff all appeals to me. Just like seeing John fight in all these different ways. Yeah, I mean John Wick is a very well versed fighter. He knows many different styles of fighting, much like he knows every single language imaginable too, even sign language. So you you can't get past John Wick. You cannot. And speaking of the fight scenes, what is your favorite fight scene in all three movies? All right. Well, Mike, if we're being honest, I have all sixteen major fight scenes ranked. So, I mean, if, if we're gonna go, I'm gonna list my top five really fast for you. Okay. My top five. Number five is the fight at the Continental in John Wick 3. That involves the fist and the sword. So after that initial gunfight, this is with the fist and the sword. Uh, that's at the Continental. That's number five. Number four, feel free to chime in, too, if you have opinions on, on these fights before I start rambling about sure. these fights. Uh, number four is the fight at the Red Circle Club in John Wick 1. This is the moment where I knew I loved this movie forever when this fight seems to play. Yeah. When this gunfight seems place in the club with that music score i was like this is magical i'm in love with john wick that fight was phenomenal like that was the one where it got me in here too and like i was all in or after that fight seeing him basically fight his way through the club try and catch up with the guy who stole his car and killed his dog yeah i so that's number four number three is when john wick is escaping uh the basically other hitmen after uh he fulfills his marker in john wick two so he's escaping Cassian. He's going through, again, that disco club setting in the Coliseum and then going in the catacombs underneath of the secret tunnels where he hides the shotgun and hides the uh, the precision rifle. And he's just kicking ass. And, like, the way they fight at the tunnels with the gun. Again, that fight scene is so beautifully made. And then you get the hand-to-hand with Cassian landing in the Continental where they can't fight anymore. It flows beautifully. I absolutely love that fight scene. That was great. Um, number two is the knife fight in John Wick 3. It's just brutal, incredibly creative and imaginable. Like, I, I love, the, love the fight scene in John Wick 3. And then number one is the Casablanca fight scene from John Wick 3 because it has everything. It has killer dogs. It has Halle Berry kicking ass. It has John Wick just being a total badass. It has absolutely everything in this fight scene. It stretches so much longer than I remember every single time I watch it. It's lovely. It is lovely. So, so the top two fights are from John Wick 3, like you said, which was the best action movie, the pure action of the three. Yeah, I I also, I like those fights. I also intrigued with some of the ones where it's not like, where he has to sort of like draw it out a little bit, has to sort of like try and anticipate moves. Like I like the fights in like the halls of the mirrors, like the one at the end of John Wick 2, I thought was a lot of fun. When he's basically, that, I have that rank number seven. 
Yeah, I like that one. I like his fight with Zero too, and and Zero's agents in the like in that glass room in the Continental in three. I love that fight, seeing like him try yep. and deal with those guys and having to go through the levels of fighters to get to Zero. I thought that was fun. Yeah, that's the one I have at number five. He's he's leveling up boss level, and then it's basically the entire Continental sequence. It's just taking on different bosses of different levels. Uh, but it's so, so well done. You got, as you mentioned, it's two straight movies where they use mirrors and they use glass really well with John Wick Chapter 2 and John Wick Chapter 3. Yeah, I was captivated with that mirror sequence at the end of 3 as when, and he was going through the level up sequence, especially that second level when they were basically trying to figure out where was actually like a pass-through and where was a mirror, and that was fun trying to try to figure that out. Yeah, it, it was great. It's so, to film using mirrors that extensively, I can only imagine how hard that is trying to light that, trying to frame every shot right so you get the reflection. I can only imagine how difficult that is to make it how precise you need to be. So to, to do that twice in two different movies, incredibly well done. It, it is incredibly well done. And they're starting to take the fights international. I mean, we do have a lot of fights in New York. The fight with Boba in the library I thought was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, when he's escaping the people, yeah. That one, I mean, Bobon broke the rules. He was going after John Wick too early. He had to pay for it. Yeah. There's no way he could survive. Yeah. Also, that's such a creative kill to kill somebody with a book. I love that. <laughs> such a creative kill. Yeah. And he puts the book back blood on it because he knows that nobody's going to check out that Russian book that he checked out. Love it. I also love how this world, they're so desensitized to all the like assassin killings going on around them. And you see people in the back of the library just kind of on their computers doing the research while these fight's going on, not even flinching. Well, that's the thing. It's just like, this is his own world. John Wick is in his own world. And it, I love how they don't, they don't call attention to it, which is why it works. It lets you hone in on it. And again, it, it doesn't treat the audience like it's stupid. But it lets the audience figure out that this is what's important and everything else is around it. It's just, there's a spotlight on John Wick and the world around it, the world that nobody knows. And these movies are shining a light on it. Yeah, they are. And I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I just, uh, the biggest example of that is when he comes back from Casablanca after meeting with the elder. He's dressed in all black, ready to kill Winston, spiking up to do it. And then he has people just taking out assassins as he's walking up Grand Central as there's, there's hundreds of people in, in uh, like, prime Grand Central, uh, like, just Terminal. transit. Yeah. It's awesome. And there's, there's bodies and blood on the floor. They're just walking by. It's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, I've been in that terminal many times when I was interning, and like I walked up that exact tunnel that he was walking up to when he first beat Zero's men. I'm like, this is so interesting. Like, I I could just see like this kind of bizarro world in New York City basically coming out here. Listen, I would love to live in that bizarre world of New York City. Count me in. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you you love the opportunity to stay at the Continental. The Continental has fantastic service. Yeah, fantastic. I will need the gold points to go to the bar underneath, so that secret bar, because I, the service there was impeccable. They knew everybody's drink order. Yeah. They probably know They probably know my favorite drink that I don't even know. Yeah. I can see them just pass it to you, like, you'll like this. Trust us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, all right, surprise me. You'll, you'll, do, you'll do it right. Yeah, and speaking of the fight scenes, obviously there's a lot based in New York. We had the Casablanca se- sequence in Chapter 3. I feel they're going to go more international as this series progresses. So where are some international locations you would want to see them stay some fights in the future movies? All right. So here I have three ideas here for future fight scenes. All right. And here are my three ideas. Feel free to chime in if you have some of the same ideas or if you have ideas. I have three. So first, the first one, this is the one they immediately thought out. We have not had a water-based 
fight scene yet. Whether it be on a boat, whether it be on a yacht, whether it be on a submarine, we have not had John Wick surrounded by water when in a fight. No jet skis anywhere like that. I guarantee you in the next movie, we're going to have something of this variety. I don't know what, but it's going to happen. We have not seen John Wick surrounded by water in a fight scene yet, which, which needs to happen. Maybe they're fighting in an aquarium, and so there's water all around him. And if they want to use the ideas of reflections in mirrors again, they could use the glass of the aquarium where the animals are being held. They could do that sort of thing as well if they wanted to. I'm just, think, I'm just thinking outside the box here, Mike. Just thinking there's got to be some sort of water fighting that needs to happen. John Wick and SeaWorld? John, I mean, John Wick and SeaWorld, maybe. I don't know. I'm thinking at an exotic foreign yacht club where there's a ton of big, big-ass boats lined up all around. He starts kicking ass, hopping from boat to boat. And then there's definitely going to be some jet ski sequence where he's got to kill some people while on a jet ski. That, that's kind of what I'm picturing. So more like Dubai, maybe. Maybe Dubai, something something along those lines, or like off the coast of Greece, yeah, or that's something a, that's, like that. That's not a good one. Yeah. So, second fight scene, which I think we haven't really seen yet, is we have not seen John Wick in a very cold environment. We've seen him fight in the heat of Casablanca. We've seen him in the desert. We have not seen him with a parka. We have not seen John Wick packed for the cold. When are we going to see that? That may happen. Now, I'm thinking that this happens in northern Russia, perhaps the homeland of his upbringing for the theater, which we learned about in Chapter 3. They were from Belarus, I believe, uh, is where he said he was from, where they said they were from. So a place in the cold like that somewhere in Russia where John Wick gets to fight in the Arctic. Yeah, that would be interesting. Although, although I hope they don't go the Rocky forward of having making our speech to a Politburo at the end of, the, at the end of his fight scene. No, no, we hope <laughs> not. John Wick's a man of few words. He would not say anything like that. Yeah. And then... So, and then my third one is more of a, a symbolic sort of thing where they go to Paris, France, and there's a fight in the catacombs underneath Paris. Now, the reason this is symbolic is because uh, John Wick is lost in a maze. That is what the elder says, what says that he's lost it's at John Wick chapter three. You can have John Wick lost in the catacombs, literally surrounded by death. He is literally surrounded by bones and skulls, which have surrounded him his entire life. And he is still lost trying to find his way out. And he's to fight his way out, literally in the catacombs of Paris. So that's my third possible solution where we could see a future John Wick fight. Yeah, I think I like all those. What I was thinking of is like think, building off of the ninja theme we had a little bit in three. I like to see them see him go sort of like an Asian locale, have like a fight scene in the middle of like China or like Japan, where like he's in one of these like swarming cities where they have people flowing all over the place. It's not because New York is not the same thing as like being in the middle of a crowded street, like set of streets in China or in Japan, like and seeing like some different ninjas coming after. I think that could be a lot of fun. That could be fun. I, I imagine that if it's in Oriental setting, a lot like the opening to John Wick chapter two, when they don't show his face for like the first 10 minutes and he's killing people quietly. If you literally get him in like a ninja costume in an Oriental setting, like just, jumping off of roofs and killing people to get to like his main target. That's what I kind of picture when you bring up ninjas and stuff like that. Yeah. I wonder if you could, I, I would have I'd probably have the budget now because they made so much money. Like I might even get him on, get him near the great wall of China digitally, even just digitally just doing stuff like there. No, they could get on the great wall of China. I yeah. have no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fun to see this happen. And I think, I think, I think your idea of the cold weather, John Wick fights, because that's the, I think that's the most likely one to come in for. 
I, I would definitely agree. Uh, I would definitely agree because there's so many loose strings that they allowed with that, with his, uh, with his, with the family that kind of rose him where he trained in that theater. Um, with the director, she has no name. Angelica Houston just with no name, just known as a director. They left a lot of strings there that can be pulled for Chapter 4. Yeah, they did. And speaking speaking of pulling some strings, we're going to actually pull a draft right now. We're going to do a draft in this podcast. Maybe get set up for something we're doing in the coming week. But we're going to do a three-round draft of... We're going to build an assassin squad here based on characters we've seen in the first three movies here. Ground rule here is you cannot take John Wick. John Wick would basically become the crap, the uh, the king of any team he's on, so he's exempt from the draft. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, since you are the guest and you are the Wick actor, I'll give you the first choice. We'll alternate picks. Who are you going to take your first pick? Oh, this is so difficult. This is. I honestly, I was hoping for pick number two, so you can make my mind up easier. Because to me, there's two easy number one options. Okay, but I am going to go with Zero as my number one pick. One, because he's hilarious. Love him. He's a character. He keeps things light. He cracks jokes. Also, he's incredibly deadly. He has his own bunch of students, too, where if you needed to call in reinforcements, he teaches his own group of assassins. Now, granted, not as good as John Wick, because John Wick kills them all. But Zero, he has an army of his own. He's also very well respected in his own right. People follow him, and they respect him. He was called upon by the adjudicator to get rid of it. So obviously, she's a woman of high power, so she knew that Zero stood a chance. But nobody stands a chance against John Wick. But Zero would be my number one pick in this draft. That was a good choice, because he was somebody I would have taken with my first pick. Because Zero, like, again, I also love Zero's, like, absolute fandom of John Wick throughout the movie. He's, like, coming up, like, everyone goes up to him. I remember they're sitting in the continent. like, I'm a big fan, by the way. I just love that moment. Yeah, it's, he's he's funny he's a unique character and i i would love to know what the pitch was for that character if they came in being he's going to be this quirky or if that was a choice of the actor is to be like listen i'm going to make this character my own because he made it work yeah he did make it work my first pick is i'm going to go to sophia also from john wick chapter three chapter three parabellum just because watching her scene where she's fighting with wick and casablanca i mean She's got the gun skills. She's got the knife skills. She's got the dogs trained to attack. I feel like that's so much versatility you want on your squad. I have to take Sophia at my first pick. Well, I mean, of course you like dogs, so that's going to be your first pick. I'm going to be honest, she was not even in my top ten. Really? So, yeah, she was not even in my top ten. Okay. She's got too much loyalty to the dogs. Yeah. If someone threatens her dog, she goes she goes crazy. You yeah. can't have that. Yeah. you got to have no strings attached. Yeah, well, but I mean, to be fair, she was part of the best fight scene in the entire franchise too. So I get it. Yeah, it's like the just the the, the absolute the display of like excellent skills throughout that fight. That's probably the longest fight we've seen in the entire franchise. Like being able to hold up against that many people that long. I mean, I think only Wick has done other than that. So I I like my chance of having her on the squad. All right, all right. That's a fair. That's a fair number one pick. I, I understand it. Right, I understand so, it. So where are you going with your next pick? Listen, my my. 1B pick is still on the board, and I am ecstatic to welcome Cassian on my squad. Yeah. Played by Common. This man is loyal to a T defending Adriana D'Antonio. He, uh, he, just, he also has that wit and banter with Wick that I like, the respect for one another. You working? Yeah. Good night? Yeah. Like, he understands the job. He's also incredibly talented. He, under, he predicted Wick's escape and fought him all the way to the Continental. Also, he's just so cool. Just a cool dude. 
you got to have that cool factor on the team. So Cassian, welcome to my squad. I love that pick as well. Cassian is always a great guy. I love the respect he has for Wick. He's like, hey, like, I know you had to do this, but I have to take care of you because you killed because you killed the person I was guarding. Like the the true yeah. honor and loyalty of the of the code here. I do respect that. Yeah, pick. I mean, listen, yeah, Wick killed his ward. Cassian was forever loyal to his ward. So if I get that Cassian loyalty, I'm I'm, I'm all on board. Yeah, so that's a good second pick. I'm going with my next pick. I'm actually going with Ares, also from Chapter 2, played by Ruby Rose. Like, I just think also the fact that, like, she doesn't talk and she's, like, just literally the definition of the silent assassin and just the, the display of moves she had, the work she was doing in the scene with the mirrors. Like, I think she gave Wick a real run for his money at points in that movie. I do think, I think Ares is my second pick. All right. I She was on my board a little bit, a little bit lower down, though. And she didn't kick enough ass for me. She didn't kill enough people. She wasn't as ruthless as I wish that she could be. I wish we saw her more deadly in Chapter 2. Okay, that's fair. So her, her snack talk was really good. Yeah, and I love the fact that, like, literally not need to say a word and can still take, and can still kick ass. Yeah, and that's, that's very true. That's very true. But, I mean, John Wick got the last word silently. Yeah, well, John, well, John Wick gets the last word on everybody, so that's not really a fair argument to make. This is true. This yeah. is true. All right. So you have one more pick. Where are you going with your pick? One more pick. Again, I'm going back to loyalty. I'm going back to a dear friend, a friend that helped John Wick in all of his moments of need, even when Wick didn't know. And that is Marcus. We cannot forget Marcus. He was that original friend that helped John Wick when he needed it most. Back when he was most rusty, just getting back into the game. He's a sharpshooter. We have, to, we have the long range approach. Which we, which you need on a team. You need someone with that long side ability to watch over the two other assassins who are going in tight. We got Marcus onto the squad. I think Marcus's wisdom and his elderly mentality would reel in the craziness of zero, and it would also keep calm. And, it would also keep uh, Cassie and cool. If Cassie needed to vent, Marcus would listen. So he's kind of the glue that holds zero and Cassie together. Marcus is my final pick. Yeah, that's a good pick because Marcus in the beginning of the movie, I liked how they play with his loyalty where they weren't sure whose side he was on. At the end, he's revealed on Wick's side and then he dies for Wick. I do love his level-headedness and he does do a good job sort of like bringing the two like rogue elements together into one team. Yeah, he does. I, I like my squad. Zero, Cassie, and Marcus. I got a good squad. Yeah. You should be worried, Mike. Yeah, I should be. But I do have one more pick to go with. I'm going, I had two I was assigned between, but I am going with the guy who made his big fighting debut at, in the last movie, and I was very excited he did. I'm taking Sharon with my last pick. Sharon was my number four pick, so I have nothing bad to say about Sharon. I absolutely love the guy. I have nothing bad to say. It's a great pick. Yeah, Sharon, I mean, he's loyal throughout the movies. He gives you, he's got the skills hooked up with whatever you need. He's willing to take care of John Wick's dog when John Wick is not there. He's shown he's capable in the fight when he's, that Compounds being stormed by assassins, like all of his staff died, but he find a way to keep to keep himself alive, kick some ass, keep reloading weapons. He showed a vast arsenal of knowledge there with the weapons and had some skills to offer here. I do think he brings a little bit of technical know how to the team as well. So I like Sharon to round that my group. That's true. Sharon also dog sits, so he'd be good for Sophia. Sophia needs to go on vacation. I get it. You and the dogs, I get it. They're the binding glue of your team. It is the binding rule of my team, and I mean like. Of the people who did not get picked, like who you think would have been the next best value on the board? 
Oh, next best value or next best person I'd want on my team? Let's see. Uh, I I would want Winston on my team. Uh, now, Winston, he's been with the Continental, I believe he says for four decades. Yeah. So the man's seen a lot. Also, Ian McShane is delightful in these three movies. So I would love his wit on my team. So he'd probably be my number four pick. And my number five pick would be the Bowery King. Yes. Uh, because strictly for the line where Lawrence just from boards, get this man a gun. Just a wonderful <laughs> line reading that immediately made me fall in love with the character. I was like, I don't care what else he does. That line reading was magic. Yeah. I want to know how many takes that took. Yeah. But put, uh, if, if I had two honorable mentions, it'd be Winston and the Bowery King. Yeah, I think we also agree. I don't think we can go near Miss Perk, go near Miss Perkins because she would completely ex- ex- screw our team over the first chance she got. Yes, I, w- I would agree. But to be fair, if we're being fair to Miss Perkins, she got the drop on Wick. Yeah. Wick wasn't ready for it. Wick only survived because Marcus. Yeah, he did only survive because Marcus. Marcus warned him with that sniper shot. Exactly. That's why you got to have Marcus on your team. Yeah, so I'm going to put a Twitter poll up after this podcast comes out, and we'll see who the people think did a better job in this draft, either me or you. I guess, I think you might win the poll on popularity, but it'll be interesting to see what this vote comes down to. I don't know. Sharon's a very popular character. Sharon, Sharon was, at, people after seeing Drama Chapter 3, they were like, I'm fairly glad we got to see Sharon kick ass. So yeah. I'm a little bit worried about that third pick for you, but I love my squad. I'm very happy with my squad. Yeah, that poll's going to be going up on Twitter after this episode drops. And I think that's about it on the Wick front. And I do want to go to the other news of the week. And this is going to be quite the segue going from John Wick to the musical that has taken the country by storm, the Hamill film. I know you saw it. I know you were a big fan. Yeah, I mean, the Hamilton movie was a, a sight to behold, though. I mean, I'm, I'm right now, if I'm being honest, Mike, I'm brainstorming segues you can make between John Wick and Hamilton. You could say the music in John Wick was almost as good as the music in Hamilton. You could say there are guns in John Wick and guns play a major part in Hamilton. I'm thinking of the segue. But anyways, yeah. I'm my mind racing. Hamilton was great on Disney Plus, Mike. Yeah. Strictly put, this this movie had a ton of hype, right? The play has a ton of hype. And I'm gonna it exceeded my expectations. The play is magic. It is wonderfully shot and directed which I think is a crowning achievement to make a play on Broadway on a stage look this lively on screen and to be able to engulf you like it does as if you were in the theater watching it. So I love Hamilton. I have listened to the soundtrack three times since it came out. I've watched it once and I'm probably going to watch it again with my sister at one point. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I got to say, a lot of fun. And this is one thing I'm curious about because I think, like, obviously it killed. I'm wondering, like, is this something you think we could see for other popular Broadway shows being turned into movies? I think it's just a Hamilton thing. The Hamilton was just such a lightning rod. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows the soundtrack. Everyone knows the original cast was phenomenal, and they want to see that. Or you think it could translate some other popular Broadway shows? This, it's, my, this is a really tricky subject, I think. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, I don't know Broadway well enough where I could speak on it fully, but just my kind of standpoint is, that everybody should see should be able to see Broadway plays, and they are expensive. Like I couldn't see Hamilton live on Broadway. I wish I could. I just couldn't afford it. So part of me wants to say yes. Put this for every play so we could see it, and so everyone can experience Broadway in the theater, even if you can't afford it. If you're not near New York or near another major city that has theater like this, so part of me wants that. Part of me is also like, not every play is Hamilton, though. You know what I mean? Not every play 
is a cultural icon. Not every play is an international success. Like, off the top of my head, I can list maybe four or five plays that I would sit down and watch in a cinematic form like Hamilton. But I've seen plays where I have no interest in seeing it in that way, shape, or form. So it's a very delicate balance, I think, because I don't think every play deserves it, but how do you tell what play deserves it and what play doesn't when there's only a few plays that I can ever know that live up to the hype that Hamilton did? So it's a very tricky subject, but to me, you can't do it for everyone. You could do it for the big ones that are universally beloved. It's tough to define those because it changes for everybody. It's a delicate situation, though. It is delicate. I I think it depends on what the level lives because obviously Hamilton was well high even outside of the Broadway world for a while. I think if something like that happens, you could get away with it. But I think it has to be a special kind of musical to get the film treatment and, and succeed, like Hamilton did. Yeah, I mean, like like just running through my head, the plays that I would plays that I've either seen on Broadway or would like to see in the cinematic way. Les Misérables, I would love to see a play like this. I love the Tom Hooper musical. I know it's divisive, but I'm a huge fan of Les Mis. And uh, the movie that came out back, I think it was 2012 or 13, I loved. I would love to see it like on the stage in a cinematic way. I would love to see The Book of Mormon, which is a, a, the funniest play I've ever seen. Would love to see that, especially with the original cast, if possible. Um, I would love to see Chicago. I never saw the play, but I love the movie, and I think that could, the lighting and the songs of that could really be captivating. I believe that was nominated for Best Picture, it if was. I recall. It was, 2002. The movie. Yeah, so I, I would love to see that play. Now, this is one. It's going to be controversial because the movie that came out in December stunk, but Cat, the play. Yeah. I personally wouldn't, but, but Mike, it was, it's an iconic play. Arguably the longest-running Broadway play of all time. It might be. Like, it's definitely up there if it's not. But the movie in December was so bad is there any way they can come back in a Broadway form and live up to, to what people would expect and to what people would watch? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's definitely tricky because this is also something you also have to realize that this was on like a streaming platform. So like it did well. This is supposed to be in the box office originally. Like how well do you think this would have done? Is it actually you're paying $13.95 for a movie ticket to go see it at a theater as opposed to paying for your Disney Plus subscription to get it? I think this movie would have made a killing. It has, it has three key ingredients. It has, um, it has Disney for one. So it has a Disney stamp of approval. Almost anything that Disney puts its name on makes money. It has, it's a known property, right? People know about it before they go to the theater. That's like the biggest thing that Marvel has going for it. Is they just, they know Marvel or they know Star Wars. People are going to go see it if it's a known commodity and they kind of know what to expect. It's, it's in the zeitgeist. People reference it all the time. And also it is interactivity because it's singing. Any movie with singing that has any sense of coherence is, is going to catch on a little bit. You think of A Star is Born. You think of the Mamma Mia movies. They made a profit as well. There are very few musical movies that do absolutely nothing in terms of theater attendance. Because it has that interactivity. Think of Trolls World Tour came out on streaming, and that did incredibly well because it has songs and singing, and people can understand that. And it's, it's a universal thing that people can appreciate when it's good. So you have those three things of Disney, a known property, and fantastic singing and music. I think it would have made it killer. Yeah, I could see the logic behind that. I think that makes some sense. And, John, I want to thank you for all your time today. Before I let you go, obviously, we do the streaming thing every week. We, we always ask but what some stuff you've been keeping up with on the streaming platform while we wait for our sports to come back. And hopefully we're close. But 
What's some stuff you've been keeping an eye on? Oh, man. I've watched 10 movies in the past seven days, so I've been watching a lot. Um, you'll appreciate this. I find, I watched the Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition today, uh, which has another half hour of footage, not in the original. Um, but uh, the, in terms of good movies I've seen recently, uh, Bad Education on HBO was excellent. Blow the Man Down on the Amazon Prime was very good. Athlete A on Netflix was incredible. Uh, an incredible documentary. Um, and the two best shows I'm watching right now are Perry Mason and I'll Be Gone in the Dark, both on HBO. Yeah, I'm watching I'll Be Gone in the Dark, too. That's fantastic. Extremely well done. It's, it's incredibly well done. It's eerie. It's, it's incredibly, it's a gross tale of negligence and... I mean, finally the guy got caught, but it's also very inspiring that somebody took the initiative to do this uh, and to solve the case even after all these years. So, it's in, I mean, HBO, you put them in a limited uh, a limited series surrounding uh, a serial killer, they're going to knock it out of the park. They just do. They always do. And I'm also watching on Netflix, have you have you seen the Unsolved Mysteries reboot? Uh, I have not, but it has been referenced to me a couple times. I'm watching a couple different shows on Netflix. I'm going to finish before I get to that, though. But it is in my queue. Yeah, definitely get to it. It's a lot of fun. If you watch the original at any, any point, I think it's going to be very interesting to see that. And I do, I did watch a couple of the episodes of it. it. It still has its fastball. It's still got some great stories to tell. And they do make you think about some things. I do. I also, it's also interesting that, like, some people, that having this in the age of Reddit is fun. Because the first case, somebody claims they may have found an, a lead on one of the cases based on some of the plots points that made it to reddit yeah i mean even uh even in i'll be gone in the dark they kind of touched upon that true crime community yeah. that that kind of it sucks you in a little bit and you get addicted to it um so and now in the time of reddit it's only amplified even more so i'm definitely going to check it out at some point it's i mean every time i open up netflix it's the first thing that i see it's basically punching me in the face to watch it yeah, it is. And apparently, I saw it today. Netflix apparently has added 15 episodes of the classic game show, Supermarket Sweep. And that was something I was like a guilty pleasure when I was a kid. I will definitely be checking that out. I have never heard of or seen it's, that it's, show. It's, so it's, I have no idea. it's hilarious. I will say that. Is it Was it on the Food Network? Because if it's on the Food Network, I've never no, seen it. It was not on the Food Network. It was, like, it was like a syndicated game show back in the day where people basically had to like it was basically it's sort of like the Price is Right component of like pricing in a supermarket. Then basically, them trying to like run around the supermarket, do crazy things like stocking their carts full of meat. It was like just such so absurd watching them do this. And it was so funny. I always love to go back to it. I mean, there's that other show on Netflix, The Floor is Lava, that people were watching as mindless entertainment. Yeah. Um, I did not, I did not start that one, but yeah. that was another game show Netflix put out that got that got a little bit of pub. Yeah, Sandrosa mentioned that last week when she was on. Said she's been checking that out. So it's basically the equivalent of like a Nickelodeon kids show, like back in the day, like of like the Legends of the Hidden Temple or stuff like, or Guts or stuff like that. I mean, this is gonna this may horrify you, but I've never seen Guts or Legends of the Hidden Temple, so I, it just said that that passed me by. Yeah, it's a, that's a shame. You should have you should have checked that out. That was definitely an error. I mean, our mutual friend Stephen Colton was ashamed at the fact that I'd never seen those shows. So he holds it over my head. and He makes me feel bad about it all the time. Yeah, he does. And and next week, you're actually going to be back next week. We are doing something special for our baseball opening day edition of the podcast. We are actually doing a baseball movie draft next week. I'm excited for this. I mean, listen, it's a little bit of a season of the baseball season. Sports on the way to coming back. No guarantee, but at least they took in those first steps and 
I mean, why not have a baseball draft? It's gonna be it's gonna invigorate me to watch the movies either I haven't seen or that I want to rewatch. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, this is we're sort of bringing the pop culture family together here on the podcast. It's gonna be me, you, Sam DeRosa, and Alan Austin, who has sort of become the third wheel of the of the pop culture podcasting team here. So the four of us will be doing a four round draft of baseball movies next week, and that's gonna be some fun. I'm curious to see where some of these movies go on this list. I, I tell you what, though, I believe the three of you are Yankee fans. I'm not a Yankee so, fan. Oh, that, okay. All right. You're a Mets fan. Yes. That's correct. I understand. I feel sorry for you. But the other two are Yankee fans, and you're a Mets fan. So you are a New York fan. No, you Al- guys can have those movies. Alan's actually a Detroit Tigers fan, believe it or not. What? I'm, I'm serious. How did I not know this? You must not be talking to Alan I enough. Mean, I mean, I don't talk to Alan <laughs> enough, but... I mean, to be fair, Comerica Ballpark, yeah. they have that little dirt strip that goes between home plate and the pitcher's mound. I love that. Yeah. I, I think that is a great little trinket that is in that is on their field, and I used to love that all the time whenever I watched Tigers games. Yeah. But man, oh man, I don't know, who, I don't know who's suffering worse right now, you or, or Austin as, as a Tigers fan. I don't know which one's worse. I think Allen's definitely suffering worse because the Mets have a shot this year. Tigers need a lot to go right. Tigers need a lot to go right over the next three years to have any semblance of, of hope. Yeah, and as we were talking about this, Alan actually replied to me on Twitter. I talked to, I remember that ESPN subtweet about the describe your favorite sports movie as boring as possible. I said mine as Field of Dreams. I said, man destroys farm to build a baseball field. And then Alan said, my favorite all-time film. Well, I think we know what's number one on his draft board. So hopefully maybe someone's going to steal it if, if he doesn't have the number one pick. Yeah, we'll see how that goes next week. But, John, thanks for all the time. He's revealing his strategy. Yeah, he did reveal his strategy. Not not exactly a uh, brilliant move there, but we'll see how the draft goes next week. People, how can people follow you on social media, John? Uh, follow me on Twitter at jstanko99, also there on Instagram and on Facebook. And uh, you can follow me on my blog and podcast at stankostance.wordpress.com. Yeah, make sure you check out John's uh, review of Hamilton, the film, on there. That was a lot of fun. Uh, listen, the movie was absolutely great, and I'm lucky to have a sister who, who knows theater and knows the more technical side of it, too, having made having made costumes and stuff like that. So uh, I had a talk with her, and she was incredibly enlightening and educational about it. So it gave me a new appreciation for Hamilton. Despite, already, despite how good I thought it already was, she only amplified it. Yeah, indeed. I want to thank you for being on. I also want to thank my other guests for today. You know, this week I talked to Tim Healy from Newsday about the Mets. That was fun. Talked to our, our friends Will Schneiderhan, Jill Venditti on the Met fan, Met fan Forum. And Alan also was actually on right before you, too. We did, we did a little bit of fancy baseball talk. Fantasy baseball. It's going to be different this year. It's a 60-game sprint for fantasy baseball. A little bit of different drafting strategy. Yeah, it's had some different points of view. Like my league had drafted before the shutdown happened, so we had we discussed like a little bit about you know like what how the leagues are approaching this, how you should approach if you're drafting now versus what you did back in April, back in March. A lot of different strategies talking about with fantasy baseball. Listen, I would uh, I would arm up on those bullpen arms because I don't think the starters are going to be going many innings to begin the year. So that'd be my advice. Yeah, that'd be your advice. And if you want to, if you want to follow the blog that I'm doing this week, I projected the Mets opening day 30 man roster. I have my thoughts on that. You can check out over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. And spoiler alert: Pete Alonso made the cut. I, I'm not surprised by that. He won the, the most exciting young players in baseball. Indeed, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. 
all the usual suspects there. You also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. I put the individual segments and the episodes up there, including our chat right now. John's going to be up there in just a couple, just a short period of time. Yes, and I'll be sharing on Stankos Fans by WordPress.com too. Yes, so, you, you, dual, dual Mike Phillips action. Dual Mike Phillips action. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings as well. They mean a lot. If you have a chance, leave a review. Helps get the podcast more noticed. Gets in the eyes of people, ears of people, really who can help enjoy it, help make it better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And I think we got to come up with a Wick-related hashtag. You have anything in mind, John? Oh, a Wick-related hashtag. Yeah. This is... Oh, my God. You put me on the spot. This is tough to think about. This is... I mean... Yeah, so, so like, where... Yeah, I would say, like... Give me, like, I would say, yeah. I would say, you know, we'll do the hashtag, like, we're going to say, we're going to do it also, do another edition of the poll on in the hashtag. So, if you like Stanko Squad, type, like, tweet tweet me with hashtag Stanko Squad made at the end of the show. If you like Mike Squad, hashtag Mike Squad. Yeah, I, I, that's a good one. I'm really, I'm trying to think of, like, what I would name Chapter 4 of John Wick to, to put as a hashtag, but I'm not creative enough to do that. So, yeah, do Stanko Squad, which is going to be the right answer, or you could do Mike squad but thank squad's the only correct opinion okay we'll see about that we'll see how the people feel but coming up next week on the podcast we have our baseball opening day special baseball beat will be here to we'll over unders that baseball movie draft and more until then stay safe everybody this has been the just end the suffering podcast i'm out